It's May 25th, 2023. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 265 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Canada, from Toronto. Salam dostan aziz. Durud bar shoma. Hope you are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia, a compendium, a Bible of Iranian diaspora identity. Uh, Smart Pega is here in the studio. Hello. Hello. Sponsored by Las Vegas. <laughs> You, how are you wearing a Las Vegas My ball Las cap? Vegas hat today, yeah. All right, very nice. <laughs> and uh, Savvy Roham is behind the soundboard. Hello, sir. Hello, Savvy. Uh, Sergeant Kamiar mm-hmm. Cam Mahinsaw. Uh, now, if you are, this guy was a, a police, actually he was the first police officer of Iranian descent uh, in Vancouver. Wow. Police officer for many years, now a sergeant, mm-hmm. but he has come to public recognition in the last few months because he has become very outspoken about the situation in Iran, mm-hmm. freedom, you know, the fight for freedom in Iran, the plight of police officers in solidarity in Iran. Oh, right. He's like, they're not all bad guys. Right. And sure. by the way, you know, they've got a really touch, tough job to do because. Mm-hmm. If they don't agree with the regime and they d- defy the orders of the regime, they're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, if they take the orders and follow through with them, they're doing things that they don't ethically feel good about. So they want to leave the profession or leave the country or whatever. So um, it's a very sensitive and interesting position he takes. But he's also in uniform as a police officer in Vancouver, has been attending rallies and demonstrations in support of uh, the, the cause, mm-hmm. the uprising, etc. So he's become known for this. Sergeant Cam, you know, uh, people at, at a rally, a bunch of Iranians, see he's a handsome guy, see this police officer in full uniform and marching with them. Him, yeah. yeah. So very interested to talk to him mm-hmm. about um, what seems to be his politicization. I'm assuming that he, he held these views for many years. He has talked about going into the profession of uh, policing because of uh, wanting to pay it forward to do mm-hmm. something for society. He and his wife are the sponsors of many orphans in Iran. Uh, he's got a you know a number of ways in which he's he's trying to help out. But um, but it's a very interesting story. He's an interesting guy, and he'll be joining us first up coming up. Then this is the Iranian Canadian show today because we've got uh, <laughs> Sergeant Cam coming. Then in the Rook Studio, MPP Goldie Kamari. Yes. Did you know that Goldie, by the way, uh, Ahvaz kid, oh. shout out, shout out to Khuzestan, <laughs> shout out to the my people, uh, born in Ahvaz, mm-hmm. right? Um, I came, came here as a little kid, you know, to Canada. Right. She is the first woman of Iranian descent to hold elected office in Canada. I actually did know that because the way I became um, familiar with Goldie was actually through 
a video that had been kind of circulating around um, Persian Twitter. Um, and it was like one of these videos that you see on TikTok. And I think it's actually from her account. And it said something like that, or it was in the comments or something like that. And then I went and I looked her up and I was like, yes. wow, that's actually really interesting. Yes, actually, not only not only is she a sitting MPP for mm-hmm. the Conservative Party, uh, the uh, this is the provincial Ontario uh, politics. Uh, those who are not familiar with Canada, <laughs> we have provinces. There's one big province called Ontario. She's one of the MPP, one of the representatives in this province but but um, not only is that her job but in in recent months particularly also with the uprising like mm-hmm. like Kamiar in Vancouver um, she has been very outspoken I mean she's been outspoken for many years but right. but especially recently and she actually became very popular on TikTok mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of followers and views and all of that and then I think I have to ask her but I think recently um, for security reasons politicians in Canada or in Ontario had yes. to take down their TikTok which must have been tough for her because oh, yeah. she had a big because you don't see her on TikTok exactly. anymore exactly yeah. yeah that's true um, she's got a lot of opinions she's got an, a, an interesting life story she's this young woman who is uh, tearing it up as a as an MPP mm-hmm. in Ontario uh, for the in the Ottawa area Carleton I believe is her riding or mm-hmm. her place so but she's a Richmond Hill kid like you she's <laughs> yes. actually from the greater Toronto area uh, and Afos so Goldie Kamari coming up in the Rook studio for a feature interview mm-hmm. very much looking forward to that she'll yes. join us after Kamiar Mahin saw the sergeant uh, and after the roundup of course um, did you see uh, President Zelensky I did the Ukrainian hero depending on who, who you ask uh, you know <laughs> Uh, he he did a, had a message for mm-hmm. Iranians. Yeah. How did we feel about that? Well, I mean, he's been doing these nightly videos or nightly messages for for some time now, um, and usually it's just there are these like heartfelt videos to um, to the Ukrainian people and that sort of thing. And every time there's you know something that's more pressing, he kind of points to it. And I guess in this most recent message, he felt the need to. You know, talk about the um, the Iranian missiles, the Shahids. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they're called. Um, but what I didn't like is they're that called Shahids. Shahid. Shahid. Is that what Shahed. it's called? Shahed. Yeah, Shahid missiles. Means Shahid. No. no, it <laughs> no. means witness. <laughs> witness. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. They're called witnesses. Well, oh. yeah. yeah. Witness. Oh right, Shahid. Yeah. Shahed. I'm a Shah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he talked about those missiles, which I don't have a problem with. What I do have a problem oh, with... Oh, you have a problem? I do. I have a problem. Right. Well, let with me Zelensky. Let me premise. Okay. Um, yeah, what I have a problem with is that he addressed Iranians mm-hmm. and basically made it seem like, you know, he was calling out Iranians and not the Iranian... Um, Cover. The Islamic Republic, not the not the oh. Iranian government. See, I didn't, re- I didn't see exactly what he said. I thought just to reading the headlines yeah. or whatever, my presumption was that he was saying, hey, I'm in solidarity with you Iranian people. No, We're, not at all. The Ukrainians and the Iranians are fighting wish, for freedom. I wish, Oh, he didn't say that. No, what, oh. he, what he said was, he basically said, he started off with this like, really, like he was trying to tug at the heartstrings, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, you know, how would you feel if the missiles killed a pregnant woman and the pregnant woman's husband and children sure. at schools okay. and this yeah. and that, which, yeah, of course, you know, yeah, nobody wants that. Yeah, yeah. But he made it almost seem like he was you know, pleading to the Iranian people as opposed to the government. And this is the problem I have is that... I oh, he was he was conflating 
the this is this is our biggest issue that we yeah. don't, the conflation of the Iranian people with the regime exactly and yeah. I feel like we've we've taken this step back and not only with really? this video he was doing that yeah I don't, that's that, that's disappointing that is disappointing considering yeah. Iranians have been so supportive of Ukraine and and what's going on and all that but what I was saying is that the problem I have is I feel like we're reverting back to this problem of being confused again with Iranians Ugh. versus the Islamic Republic and we're now being seen again as Why the do you, same thing. What evidence thing. do you have of that other than Zelensky saying this thing? I mean, I don't know. I just feel like we had this spike in yes. international media where yes. there was this clear emphasis. I gotta put. think he knows the difference. Well, I He's running around in his jersey, you know, talking to people and um, leaders of the I world. I mean, if you're looking at that last video, there's really? no evidence of him knowing that. Did you see this, Rohan? No. Oh, but all right. Yeah, I'm well, speaking from ignorance. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, that's a, that's a, that, that's problematic. Yeah, that's and, what he and said. might I add, Persian Twitter is blowing up with you know responses to this video. Well, I thought the responses uh, were um, easy for you to say, white guy who gets support from the West. We haven't had any support. Also true. <laughs> But that, but you're talking about what's Persian Twitter blowing up around? Persian Twitter is saying, you know, first of all, everyone's calling him out on saying, why are you making it seem like you're speaking to the Iranian people? Oh, okay. Where so this isn't just your theory. To, no, this isn't just me. Okay. This is like, right, this, I, I'm not the only one who's okay, saying this. All right, yeah. All right. I mean, I, I definitely have a strong problem with it, but you watched I'm not it. alone. I did. Right. Funny, eh? I, I kind of just gave him the benefit of the doubt. I thought, no. oh, Zelensky mentioned Iran. It was probably something like, yo, you guys are like us. We're fighting a big menace. And, you know. And uh, it's so funny because people. Because uh, that's the way we see it. Right? Exactly. We've been, uh, there's been a lot of Iran or Ukraine rallies. Yes. I mean, there has been some hand-wringing or heartbreak or difficulty amongst mm -hmm. Iranians saying, why didn't we get the support of the, the way the Ukrainian people have? The other thing he said, he kept on emphasizing on um, Iran should be on the right side of history, and the more that they supply Russia with these missiles, the more they're going into the wrong side but of history. But that's true, isn't it? It, it is, and, and again, I would be okay but why do you why do you think he was talking to the Iranian people? Because not once did he mention regime, government, uh. Islamic Republic. It, it was just continuous Iranians, Iranian oh. people. Oh boy! Yeah. Uh, on a completely separate, uh, I think unrelated. I don't think there's any relationship between uh, geopolitics, Zelensky, Ukraine, and Tina Turner. But rest <laughs> in peace, Tina Turner. Yes, that was sad. Now, um, I thought this was interesting because uh, I, I, I've never had the chance to interview T Tina Turner. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, oftentimes now when somebody dies, uh, it'll be somebody I interviewed. You know, I, I would think unrelated, but uh, yeah. Uh, hopefully. But uh, yes, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> but um, but I never had the chance to meet her. But of course, if you grew up as a kid of the '80s, that I I was, mm -hmm. you, the, there was I mean there was a time I would say mid '80s. You know, you got your Michael Jackson, you got your Prince, you got your Springsteen. Uh, she was the biggest star mm -hmm. on the planet. The reason I bring that up—that's obvious to anybody who's listening, who's in Canada or the U.S. or England or something—but. Right. I don't think from my extremely unscientific survey <laughs> of the last 24 hours of Iranians, uh, I don't think he, he, Tina Turner was one of the breakthrough artists. In other words, if you were very into Iran, I mean, mm -hmm. if you were very, very up on culture and popular culture uh, uh, inside Iran, you might know a song or two of Tina Turner. But from my canvassing of the people who spend most of their life in Iran and have, mm -hmm. have come here, they didn't know who she was. And to not know, like like Super P, no idea. 
You know, to not know Tina Turner would be almost impossible so for funny. a Canadian kid, right? Yeah. So I think the Iranians who were here, obviously, you know, I mean, she's an icon. Yeah. But uh, but I thought that was interesting because they, there are those artists. I mean, obviously, we've talked about Pink Floyd and mm-hmm. um, Michael Jackson, you know, these, these artists that the, the series Friends, you know, Friends. Yeah. everybody knows Friends, mm-hmm. uh, that horrendous, shitty uh, German group. What's that group called? Modern, modern talking, talking book, yeah. Modern talking, <laughs> talking book. Modern talking, the a band that no one knows except yeah. the Iranians, <laughs> and yet you guys like it. But uh, but Tina Turner. So if I'm going through my social media, mm-hmm. it's completely divided. My non-Iranian friends posting about oh I. I remember that my first dance was to Private Dancer, you know, whatever. And going through her catalog, mm-hmm. uh, I'll miss Tina Turner. And Iranians is kind of, you know, there's a few people, but I mean, it's not a not a big deal. I'm surprised because exactly because of what you were saying with Friends and, and Prince and Michael Jackson and this and that. I would have put <clears throat> Tina Turner in the same category and thought that, you know, even Iranians in Iran would have known her. But now, I think so. Someone you probably knew her, right? Yeah. Roham? yeah. Somebody like Roham because your music and. Yes, and I have two older brothers that are like 10 years older than me. Uh So they have songs from 80s and 70s. So I had those in the the house play. The original 80s. There's there's old Tina Turner, 60s and 70s, pre-revolution, pre-Islamic revolution. There might be some Iranians who would know that. And I clearly remember we have a vinyl um, of her. It was like (laughs) pink and... Yeah, yeah, I still remember Sounds that. Sounds like well, Tina Turner. Talented yeah. Anahita never knew Tina Turner. Interesting. A dancer. A dancer herself. Yeah. Uh, doesn't know Tina Turner. Um, Bearded Omid said he knew one song because they had a video. His parents had a video hmm. of one uh, Tina Turner song. Anyway, rest in peace, Tina Turner. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, a story of resilience, a huge star in the mm-hmm. 80s, notably did a song with Bowie, David, <laughs> David Bowie, uh, which I will remember, but uh, um, actually did a couple songs with Bowie. But uh, it's, it's, it's so big when somebody who's this, I mean, some people call her the queen of rock and roll. When mm-hmm. somebody like this passes, you think, wow, man, that's a big, big empty hole now in yeah. our culture. The, the tribute Even though, videos yeah, have been just... Yeah really I don't know I mean I feel like when someone passes and you see these tribute videos it's almost like it's so sad because when they're alive no one's making things like this for them and well she she definitely got her um, especially in the second half of her career she's uh, definitely got her deserved recognition Mm -hmm. but um, not so much amongst the right hey if I'm wrong info at rookmedia.com let us know info at rookmedia.com or post on one of our or any of our platforms and let me know if I'm wrong if you think that the Iranians were uh, it's not like Tom Cruise Iranians <laughs> Tom Khurus <laughs> Tom Khurus it's not like that um, let's get we're going to get to uh, uh, Sergeant Kamyar Mahinsa we're going to get to MPP Goldie Kamari in the Rook studio we're going to get to the roundup but before that let me tell you about something you should know this episode of Rook is brought to you with the support of Blinds Factory. Blinds Factory. You like blinds, don't you, Pega? I do. Blinds, you know, better than the tired old school curtains. Oh, yeah. Blinds are where it's at, right? Absolutely. Your stop is Blinds Factory, made in Canada. Actually, Mm -hmm. I think even manufactured in Toronto. Oh, wow. With an Iranian connection. 
inventive designs, options that have been carefully considered, trend advisors that curate collections. So presumably you tell Blinds Factory what kind of blinds you want. Mm -hmm. They make the blinds for you. There you go. Blinds Factory guarantees that you'll find the perfect blind shade or drapery to match your style and needs. Each treatment is crafted to the exact dimensions of your windows, then professionally installed for a perfect fit. Best of all, they are passionate about details and that shows in everything they do. Find Blinds Factory at blindsfactory.ca or on Instagram at blindsfactoryca. Easy enough to remember. Blinds Factory, Pega. Got it. Okay, so let's get to the roundup. Uh, and um, I guess you're going to talk about the UN High Commissioner. I am. I was just going to yeah. say, I've got another bone to pick. Okay. <laughs> so um, this is something that's also, I guess, gone a little bit viral, at least within the Iranian community. Um, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, a gentleman by the name of Volker Turk. I'm sure I'm butchering that name, mm -hmm. but I think that's how it's pronounced. He released an official statement from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights a couple of days ago. Uh, essentially, his statement was, um, you know, a, a kind of review of his time in office. Uh, he's been in this position for roughly about six months now. So he's, um, you know, he, he talked about the different human rights concerns that are going on in the world. Uh, he pointed to obviously what's going on in Ukraine, um, some of the other atrocities taking place. And of course, he discussed Iran and what's been happening over the course of the past eight months. Now, in his statement... He mentioned that, um, and I'm going to quote him, he says, I urge the government to heed the Iranians' calls for reform <laughs> and begin by repealing regulations that criminalize non-compliance with mandatory dress codes. Right. Now, this quote of his has gone viral. No kidding. For obviously not so great reasons, yeah. because, I mean, what a way to just minimize what has been happening over the course of the past eight months to reduce the the atrocities the killings the executions the imprisonment the torture everything else to reform yeah and dress code i mean is that what's been happening yeah, for the, the past eight months the inverse of what iranians around the world exactly. and inside iran have been saying yeah Exactly. So, um, as I'm sure you can imagine, there's been all sorts of. Um, Are you going to talk about Persian Twitter again? I am because I think. Why it's don't you so talk about important. like Persian Instagram or because something? Because it's not the same. Uh -huh, okay. I think I, honestly, Persian Twitter by any and all means is much better than Persian Instagram. It's okay. just so much more <laughs> useful, I would okay. say. Um, but definitely, there's been a lot of backlash, a lot of commentary, um, a lot of um, you know. <laughs> opinions on 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 the way that he uh, he mentioned this and also it, it comes at a really confusing time because we've seen the United Nations you know putting the Islamic Republic as chairs of different um, forums we've seen them you know recognizing them at the UN and so for him to mention something like this and then at the same time we see that from the UN just hypocritical yeah and uh, but this of course being in the, in the same breath as uh, there's a isn't there an Iranian head to the United Nations Human Rights Council or something? Yes, like that? that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And also, uh, you know, there's a head of workers' rights from Qatar, right. which is again <laughs> the, <laughs> the irony. Whole, I mean, <laughs> if if the last nine months proved anything, it's the futility mm -hmm. of the United Nations, and I mean, it's. I hate saying this. I know we have some friends who are politicians and diplomats and who believe that, you know, these things take time and we can bring uh, things along in a diplomatic way. But I, I, it's just such a fallacy to think that there's anything that can be gained from 
from the United Nations. It's it's almost like better if it didn't exist mm-hmm. because its existence gives us hope that there might be some levers that we can pull to actually have justice or ethics or democracy or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I used to be one of those people who was an advocate for diplomacy and, and you know, believed in this kind of ideology of an organization like the UN. But within the last eight, nine months, all of that has been lost. I know there's good people who work in UN affiliated like UNESCO or something, mm-hmm. those uh, who are in the field doing good work and you never want to denigrate them. But otherwise, yeah. do you know anyone who thinks the UN is, I mean, does anybody think that, that, that there's any definitely any no Iranians? <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, UNICEF after all that happened with mm-hmm. the kids and the, the those sort of superficial, perfunctory statements made about uh, you know we've, we've got to do something about this. I mean, it's very very disappointing. All right. So anything else on the roundup? Um, so I wanted to kind of talk about something a little bit different on the roundup today. Okay. I know we've traditionally I guess the last couple of months we've always talked about um, some of the news that have come out from inside Iran or Persian Twitter and Mm -hmm. things like that but I wanted to shed light on um, Iranians at the Cannes Film Festival because that's currently going on and there's a lot happening actually with with Iranians at the at the festival Um, some of it not so great unfortunately Um, so one of the um, something that's taken place is that um, there was a foundation that used to be the top film entity which would attend the Cannes Film Film Festival annually they are no longer attending nor allowed to actually attend because they were based out of Iran so in in, in order to replace that Iran's actually being represented by the Iranian Independent Filmmakers Association which was founded uh, back in September 2022 and is based out of Dubai so that's the first change that we've seen this year the next thing is that we only have one film at the film festival Mm -hmm. this year now this film is actually a very timely drama called Terrestrial Verses, which is, I mean, I just did a quick look at it and it was a phenomenal story. It's co-directed by um, Canadian-based um, director Ali Reza Khatami and Iran-based director Ali Asghari. Uh, it was all shot in Iran without any permits, might I add, um, after uh, Masa Amini's uh, death. And so it's, it's a story of um, the absurdities and the tragedy that Iranians face in their everyday life. And I mean, just some it, of the... I think I've read about this. It's a series of vignettes mm-hmm. um, where they're actually asking questions of authorities and and pointing out the absurdity by putting that on film, right? Exactly. Right. And I mean, to, to imagine that this is taking place at a time where there's protests erupting, you know, everything that we've been seeing happen over the past eight, nine months without permits to take a camera and mm. put it in people's face and ask those questions. I mean, I, I can't wait to see this. Um, What's it called again? It's called uh, Terrestrial Terrestrial Versus. Versus. I had to make sure I got that right. Right. Yeah, and that's a can. I think it just got distribution. I think it just they just got distribution for that film, which means that people may potentially Mm -hmm. get to see it. Exactly, which is great. um, anything else? Yes. One other thing that uh, that happened at the film festival actually is that um, historically we've seen a lot of protests at the film festival. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that a lot of females protest is that they actually don't wear shoes because this has become um, a big deal. There's a lot of media, there's a lot of coverage, and there's a certain look to the Cannes Film Festival. So most recently, Kate Blanchett actually appeared barefoot uh, and noted that it was her way of protesting and showing solidarity for the women of Iran. 
Um, so that was a really big deal. And uh, quite uh, actually, immediately after that, she also presented um, Zar uh, Amir Ebrahimi with an award uh, for Breakthrough Artist. So again, a lot of conversation being had about um, solidarity with Iran and Iranians. Mm-hmm. Was Zelensky wearing shoes when he? <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't shown in the video, unfortunately. Iranians. Yeah. Uh, okay. Great. So that was the roundup. Yes. Um, and then uh, I'm not done yet. There's okay. a couple of uh, events taking place. That, the, the, the events are not part of the roundup? Well, they could be. Okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> they could be. So a couple of really interesting events. Um, there's a photo exhibition taking place in Milan. It's the first solo exhibition by Iranian photographer Farnaz Damnabi. Now, it just opened on uh, Tuesday at Milan's 29 Arts in Progress Gallery. And uh, it's a, a collection of images showing women's lives um, and just women going about uh, daily life, whether it be at home, at work, in the city, in the countryside. But the interesting thing is that all of these images were shot in Mashhad. Mm. So um, a lot of these photos actually don't depict the women's faces. It's just, you know, them doing tasks and kind of showcasing their lives, but without actually showing their, their face. And again, to be able to take these photos in a city like Mashhad to, to showcase what these women are doing, just a phenomenal exhibition of photos for great, sure. A great reason to, if there wasn't other reasons, a great reason to go to Milan. Definitely. Italy, and those of you who are listening in Italy, shout out to you. Absolutely. And one other place yes. that doesn't really need more reason to travel to, but uh-huh. if anyone's around Australia, any of the uh-huh. cities in Australia. A lot of people in Sydney who listen to lots us. Lots of people okay. in Sydney who listen to us. There's two um, Australian tours taking place. One by Max Amini. Uh-huh. He's going to be... Never heard of him. <laughs> if he, you're if a, you're not familiar with him, yeah. <laughs> comedian Max Amini. Uh-huh. Um, he's going to be in Australia traveling to Auckland, Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. All right between August 2nd to the 6th for his Australia tour. Excellent. And our friend, Ali Azimi, is going to be in Australia. Um, Maximini not our friend? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maximini yes. is going on a tour. And our friend, Ali Azimi. Well, our friends, yes, Maximini yes, yes, yes. and right. Ali yeah. Azimi. Um, Ali Azimi <laughs> will be in Australia between are July... Are they paying us for these uh No, these are just shout-outs oh, that right, I think yeah, it, it's well, interesting absolutely. for any of our listeners who absolutely. are in that area or traveling to that yes. area. Um, Ani Azimi will have his Australia tour July 21st to 29th, and he'll be in Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney. Awesome. Well, yeah. we're seeing Ali. Listen, I uh, I hope Max Amini has a great tour, and I hope our friend <laughs> Ali Azimi. <laughs> I'm not going to live this one down again, am I? <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, uh, yeah, you, they're both Both friends. of our friends, yeah, yeah. yes, that's right. All right. Lots to see in Australia and Milan and Cannes, and uh, thank you. Pega for the roundup. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox, if you want to see visuals with uh, your Rook diet. Switch over to YouTube. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. Uh, Actually, Savvy Roham does the translations uh, on Telegram. And from what I understand... They're usually wrong, but uh, <laughs> I can't read them really some way, I, nor can I read Persian Twitter, so I'm missing out on a lot, except, except I press the thing that says translate. translate. And oh, that's I, horrible. And then I don't know what I'm it's really so reading, bad. Google will just say whatever uh, it you know, says. That is always wrong. Yes. It, it, <laughs> well, I, I, the thing is, I can tell. Yeah. I know. And, uh, CVP, what does this say? Yeah. <laughs> um, or I could just spend an hour reading one line at a time, the way <laughs> I read Persian. Um, uh, we would love your support 
at rookmedia.com. We do crowdsource uh, what we do here. And those of you who support us with um, your monthly donations, it means the world. You can become a Rook member on Patreon by going to rookmedia.com and just press the support us button and become a Patreon member. We really, really appreciate it. All right. Thank you again, Pega. Thank you, Rohan. Let's get to our first guest. He is standing by. My first guest today is an award-winning Iranian-Canadian police officer, a sergeant to be exact, Kamyar Mahin Saw, was born in Iran. He immigrated to Canada alongside his family during the Iran-Iraq War. Kamyar joined the Vancouver Police Force almost 27 years ago to help, he says, people, especially at-risk youth in the community. He's also run a campaign uh, sponsoring orphans in Iran over the last decade. Kamyar has been outspoken about the situation in Iran, particularly since the beginning of the uprising last September. And he dedicated his recognition certificate for 25 years of distinguished service to an Iranian police officer who refused to arrest a girl for a hijab violation. We'll get to that and more with the man right now, Sergeant Kamiar Kam Mahinsa, joining me from Vancouver today. Hello, sir. Hello, Jian. Uh, my pleasure to be on the program, and uh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure for me, too. Thank you for the work that you do, and I'm, I'm glad we have this chance to talk. You know, I've got to say, there is something really empowering about watching a police officer walk alongside protesters uh, as you've been doing in Vancouver in the demonstrations for Iran. I, I guess it's added inspiration for us when it's an Iranian Canadian officer in, in uniform. What kind of reaction do you get from people on the streets at these rallies? Um, you know, part, part of the reason I do that because uh, when I'm in uniform as, as a police officer, um, I find that people look up. I'm, I'm a um, I'm a role model for the community. So uh, being involved in these uh, protests or um, these um, being with the people that's uh, something that I find that is um, my responsibility to do. And uh, it's been overwhelming the um, the reception that I get from people. And I still don't understand it, but they want to take photos of with me and uh, I get handshakes all the time. People really, really appreciate seeing that. And that creates that uh, the contrast between the police in, in Vancouver, in Canada, and the police in Iran, where they are actually uh, the, the symbol of, um, of oppression where here I walk alongside of people to reassure them that uh, I'm here for you, I'm here with you. And as a police officer or an Iranian person, just a, just a uh, Iranian Canadian uh, citizen, I'm, I'm with the people and I feel that responsibility. You know, I, of course I, I grew up in, in the West, but, but I've been told many, many times, uh, uh, over the years that, that Iranians, especially those who come more recently from Iran, because of, as you, as you said, what they associate police officers or security figures or authorities of those kind in Iran with, that they have a kind of trepidation or um, um, that they don't trust police officers or don't don't like to be around them. That's not something you've experienced. No, it's, it's actually, I have experienced that not here towards me, but I often get uh, messages from people that... Um, 
that they say that what you're doing is representing a different uh, different side of the uniform. And uh, they say even, even even people that are in their 40s, in their 50s, they, they come to me and say, I am still terrified of that uniform, even, even in the West, even in Canada, when I see police officer, all the negative feelings come back. And thank you for, for um, showing a different side, showing a, a more kind, gentle, and proper side of that uniform to the people. I mean, you've, you've become something of a celebrity uh, in Vancouver, um, if not beyond there, there too, in social media, et cetera. When people are coming up and taking pictures of you at these demonstrations, do they know who you are or do they just love the idea that there's this handsome police officer who's walking alongside them? I find that I get recognized with or without uniform now. And, uh, and I, I get a lot of kind messages from, from people in Vancouver that um, they want me to be more involved and, uh, and help with um, bringing all sides because there is a little bit of um, disjointed uh, efforts, uh, political activities in, in Vancouver, and they want, um, I've, been, I've been asked to, uh, to bring all of that together and be some kind of a take, take more of a leadership role. Mm. And that's also part of the plans uh, for the near future. You know, it's not a surprise, uh, I'd like to say, seeing um, a police officer or a sergeant who cares about the community and, and plays a role in it. Uh, but it is maybe a little bit more of a surprise to see somebody um, taking a, something of a political stance. You, you, you posted a video very recently, I think it was last week, in your uniform, saying people ask you, you know, what, what happened what, that you've become, in their eyes, suddenly so political. And you spoke of little Keon Pierfalak, who, of course, we know is the 10-year-old who, who died recently during this uprising in the fall. Let me ask you the same question. When and how did you decide to become as active as you are against the practices of the Islamic Republic leadership? Uh, before all these, uh, the, the, the recent uprising of about eight, nine months ago, I was not on social media. I was not involved in any any political activities. And uh, my efforts were focused more on helping the Iranian community in Vancouver and uh, do what I could to um, uh, to attract the young, pe young people of the community to the um, job of policing, to the policing in general, and also try to, uh, try to um, uh, fill the gap of, of the knowledge of people, because a lot of people come to Canada and they, 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 they may not be aware of um, the extent of what police can and cannot do. And uh, I wanted to always be a source of information for those people so that if they need the police, don't hesitate, they can, they can use those resources. And uh, that's been the focus of, uh, of my, I started that 27 years ago. As soon as I became a police officer, I was involved in the community. But after the uprising, obviously, with all the uh, brutality that we saw, the videos that came out of Iran, it was, we all became political and, and human rights activists. But the turning point for me was when um, Kian Pierfalak, the 10-year-old uh, the who was uh, shot by security forces in his family car, and what he said, that resonated with me, and that was painful. It was painful for a little kid 
to say, to urge his dad to say, dad, let's trust the police this one time. And his dad listened to him and now he's no longer with us. Yeah. I still get emotional Yeah, when I think about it. But that was a turning point for me that I said, no, I'm going to take a stand as a police officer, as an Iranian, I am going to do everything I can to change whatever I can. And because of who I am, because I have this, this platform, this uniform itself is a platform for me. I'm going to use it to full uh, extent to try to um, connect with the police in Iran and try to show them a different world of how they should be, how they could be, as opposed to what they are and what they're doing to their people. When you make that decision, do you hear um, from the VPD? Do you, do you hear from other police officers? Do you hear from your superiors? What was that? I'm just curious. I mean, I know you're not going to throw anybody under the bus, but did anybody kind of go, hey, man, settle down. We, you know, police officers should stay neutral or don't do this or don't say these things? I, I never received any official um, permission to, uh, to appear in uniform, but one of the pillars of the VPD of our police department is community engagement. And that is what I'm doing. All my efforts is to stand with my community. Now, that's what's encouraged among the police officers, and, um, and that's what I'm doing. And I've been asked a few times, uh, how is it that uh, they allow you in uniform to march with people? Mm. How is it that they allow you to take a political stance? And my answer is very simple. I stand with my community. I stand with my community and that's it. It's very simple. It's as simple as it gets. I suppose technically, if there were members of the Vancouver Iranian community who support the regime, you wouldn't be standing with them. But uh, they're pretty far and few to, to find. I mean, uh, they're not going to out themselves, I suppose. Uh, Gian, they're, they're not my people. <laughs> my people are the ones that are protesting. My gotcha. people are the ones that are dying. I got you. My people are the... Uh, the uh, the death row in prisons of Jumuri Islami. So uh, the supporters of the Islamic regime in Vancouver are not my people. I do not stand. I'm fully against them. In fact, parts of part of my effort is to um, to find out how we can get rid of these Ahazadaha in uh, um, in Canada. And that's that's a whole different angle that I'm looking at. Well, I'm glad you brought. I'm glad we went there because that was actually where I was going to go with the with what I was going to ask you, which is that we hear uh, when I talked about people supporting the regime. I mean, this has become this issue for for Canada and for Iranian Canadians. Uh, you know, the IRGC still not being fully on the terrorist list. That there is certainly here in Toronto, and I know in Vancouver as well, this preponderance of people who come with money from Iran and. Um, uh, and are connected to the regime. Do you have any um, leads or do you have any sort of sense of how you're combating that in Vancouver? You know, um, I get names forwarded to me from all over the place. And uh, a lot of times I have to fact check those names and I pass them off to, uh, to our uh, counterterrorism unit because the way I look at it, IRGC is a terrorist organization, regardless of if the uh, if the uh, world powers want to debate that issue to death. But uh, to me, it's pretty simple. So 
uh, these people in Canada, um, they are connected to the government, a terrorist government, and I forward that information to, uh, to our counterterrorism unit, and I know that they are um, actively working on some of those names. When we talk about um, the IRGC not formally, as you say, institutionally being put on the terrorist list in Canada, it raises the question of the, the delta, the difference between what these leaders in the West say, including our own prime minister, and what actually gets done. And you talked about this in a, in a video you posted a few days ago. This was expressing your outrage about the United Nations and the backdrop of the latest executions and the hypocrisy you see amongst Western leaders and Western representatives and governments cutting their hair, pledging solidarity with the Iranian people. Um, and then what we recently have seen with regards to the United Nations. Can you talk about that a bit? I think part of the problem is um, I, I don't I don't blame the uh, the Western countries. Every country obviously has a right to look after the uh, their own interests, and uh, nothing has been done because clearly it's not in their best interest to take action. And it's just talk, just to um, just to uh, what do what do I want to say? I want to say it's just 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 want to say things. Um, uh, just, just to calm the people down, just, just to show them that they are doing nothing. Something's being done, but nothing is being done, and it's on us. It's on us. People in Iran are doing what they have to do. What we have to do outside Iran is to um, these. These are elected officials, and the key word is elected. These elected officials, when time comes that they want our votes, that's when they want to listen. That's when they come. But this, we need to hold them accountable to their actions, not their words. And it's on us. It's on people in Canada, Iranian community in Canada, in US, in Europe, to hold them accountable, to show them. If we have a 20,000 uh, protest um, march on Capitol Hill um, or uh, in Ottawa, do you think they're going to listen? Do we get their attention? Absolutely, because that's when Mr. Trudeau is going to uh, go, going to count the numbers and say that's how many votes I'm going to lose in right. the next election. Right. So it's it's on us to make them listen, to make them do something, and we haven't been doing that. These uh, these scattered protests here and there, that's fantastic, but it's not really um, making a difference, making that impact that it should. One of the things you've talked about is is that we should be talking about the situation in Iran everywhere and to everyone, not just at rallies, not just amongst the Iranians. Um, and I thought that was quite profound. I mean, it's 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 a simple point, but I think sometimes we compartmentalize our activism and sort of go, okay, well, I'm going to go on Saturday to a rally. That's where I'll talk about the bad things in Iran. And now I'm just going to go work with my colleagues and not mention anything. And I, I guess your, your notion is that this is something that we should be talking about constantly, huh? Absolutely. Activism is not limited to Saturdays from 2 to 4. It's something that um, we need to be constantly making people aware of. At work, I talk to people. In fact, when I walk in uniform in the march on Saturdays, all my colleagues, they come and ask me, what's going on? What's happening? They weren't paying They're standing there, but they're paying attention. So I talk to them a lot. I talk to them. I 
explain things to them and um, they go off and talk to other people don't forget we're not just the voters they are voters as well so when they we need their help that's when they need to be aware and then come to our help so um it's it's a collective it's a collective effort that we have to put in imagine if every single iranian canadian um made at least 10 other non-iranians aware of the situation and asked them for help how big of a of an impact would we have yeah and at the same time cam you would know this um you, you know, people are frustrated. Uh, unfortunately, there was um, maybe some uh, anticipation or expectation that things would happen very quickly in the fall, and and when they didn't, and when there's been uh, the the ugly face of the disunity of our community too, especially amongst opposition leaders and this type of thing, people tend to um, turn off or say, I you know, I, I don't want to deal with it. I'm I, it's too hurtful. We're not. It's nothing's being accomplished. And I've just had enough. I've seen that amongst even friends of mine who were very, very active in social media and going to, you know, these demonstrations and things up until uh, two or three months ago and then just stopped and partly stopped because they weren't getting the clicks anymore and all of that. Uh, what do you say to, to people who are feeling deflated? Um, you know what? I think that is a that immediate gratification is expectation is is a is a byproduct of of the internet and uh, and mobile phones we have everything at the tip of our fingers so we, we we've lost our patience and we want things to get done right away look look we can we can order anything from amazon right we can order everything and it'll be there in a day and if it's two days we we get we get pissed off and we'll, that's too late <laughs> we don't even go to the corner store to buy anything we'll just have everything delivered to us so that that culture has um has become the norm and anything outside of that is is problematic for us and and we get we get deflated and i don't blame people for that because um people expected that uh, a, a a dictatorship uh, of 44 years just to disappear just because people took to the streets that's never gonna happen it is the the, the only thing that i can say is that we are going the right direction as long as we stay course then at the end of the road doesn't matter when if it's next month six months two years five years we are doing this for the future of our country and future of our people and future of our people is not next month future of our people it's worth um fighting for and it's worth whatever time it takes that's what people don't understand that's why they get um the feeling of despair that nothing is happening and we've lost already no we haven't there's so much going on in iran in the provinces kurdistan in sistan baluchistan um there is a lot going on it's just that our people will get to a point where things will become more and more unfortunately revolution is not like an ikea furniture it doesn't come with the uh, instruction manual right so we can't just open it up and say oh okay here's uh the phase one phase two okay this is what we have to do this but nobody knows what what needs to be done and then we talk about unity as if we know what it is we don't know what unity is they didn't they killed that part of the culture 
in us for 44 years because that is the first thing they wanted to uh, to avoid was people becoming yeah. one people becoming united and they knew that that was the biggest threat to the to the islamic republic so now we're working against 44 years of jumhuri islami right yeah. the islamic republic yeah and that's not going to happen in in two days in six months yeah a hundred percent everything you just said uh, although the disunity piece predates the last 44 years as well uh, hence the fact that there was actually a revolution 44 years ago right i mean we, we that's something that we have to figure out uh how we collectively deal together as uh, as iranians at some point um and one would hope that, that can be a project that we uh, embark on sooner rather than later um it's it's so interesting talking to you and about knowing what you do. Uh, you're a sergeant, you're in this police uh, force. Tell me about going into that. I mean, you're a young looking guy, but you've actually been with the Vancouver Police Department for 27 years, as you say, and you've seen policing and your career as a way of paying it forward. Was that the incentive for this Iranian kid who came to Canada to become a, uh, a police officer? You know, um... People are attracted to law enforcement for many different reasons. Some people, it's the action. Some people, it's the uniform, the gun, the uh, the adrenaline. Uh, some people, for some people, it's a calling. Um, they've always wanted to do that. For me, it was it wasn't any of those. I came to Canada as a 13 year old, and it was during the war, and I felt safe. I felt um, like I was home, and. Uh, I had a very typical teenage years and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but uh, but I knew in the back of my mind that I always wanted to give back to the community. And um, I, w I was very impressed with, uh, I had some contact with the police, it was all positive, and I was very impressed with the, with the police in Canada. And I thought, what best way to pay it forward and give back to the community than to um, take responsibility for their uh, security and peace? So that was my reason for becoming a police officer in Canada was just basically repaying the kindness of the country to me and my family, even though uh, it's funny, the first time I put on the uniform, my dad said, uh, I didn't bring you all the way from uh, from Iran to be a possible. That's uh <laughs> demeaning of but, but that's that's the culture they well they, i was gonna I was say i was gonna ask you i was gonna ask you how the parents felt about you going into this line of work i i was the very first uh, iranian police officer in vancouver and back then it was it was um not an option for iranian uh, young people to to go into policing so when i when i decided to do that there was a little bit of resistance at home with my uh, my parents because they still saw they had the old country mentality of the police is corrupt the police is uh the last resort if you can't do anything else and you got to do something better with your life and all of that which um um over the years i have been able to change my dad's mind and he's uh very proud of what i've accomplished and what i've become I'm going to come back to your parents before we finish the interview, but I, one of the things I love about what you want to do is educate people around the different kinds of police officers that can exist, how being a, an enforcement officer or a sergeant here in Canada might be different from, from Iran, um, but at the same time also the solidarity you express with 
um, other police officers doing the job that you're doing in Iran under very different circumstances, obviously. So you received this recognition certificate for 25 years of distinguished service to the citizens of Vancouver, and you ended up giving it or dedicating it as an honor to a fellow Iranian police officer named Behnam Zarayi, who is an officer in Iran, inside Iran. Tell us about that. It was something that happened. It was something that happened. Um, I saw that video of Sarvan Zarayi, who, um, who stood up for a woman who um, was not wearing a hijab and was being bullied by some government supporters. I was very impressed that against all odds, he chose to do the right thing, even though he knew he was he was going to get in trouble. And what he did was so much, so much more courageous than what I've ever done that I thought that uh, I had to do something to bring attention to his actions. Kind of like trying to protect him as, as well, uh, because I did, he knew he was going to get in trouble. He was going to get arrested. He was going to get disciplined and all that. But I thought that, you know what, I'm going to do this and hopefully this will go viral and it will bring attention to him. And then that way, maybe he's protected a little bit if he becomes um, somebody that is well known. But seriously, it was it was just what I felt like doing at the time was that, hey, they're giving me this and I haven't done anything special. That guy in that country against that system is is um, showing so much courage. He deserves it more than I do. It's a, it's a beautiful act of solidarity. Do you hear from police officers in Iran who see what you've been doing in Vancouver? I have uh, so much followers that are police officers, active police officers in Iran right now in contact with me. And uh, and a lot of them tell me that um, they are in a tough situation. They're in a t- very tough situation. They are all um, suffering just like everybody else with, with the economy, with the, uh, with the inflation and with, with the corrupt system of the uh, Islamic Republic. But they don't know. They're, they're at a point where they don't know what to do. They, if, if they quit their job, then how are they going to um, to make a living for their families? How to, how can they provide for their families? If they stay and wear that uniform, they have no respect for that uniform yeah. anymore. Not under the Islamic Republic. They all love their work. Don't get me wrong. They all say that they they did that just to help people, but they can't. It's a it's a corrupt system, and they don't know what to do. Most of them tell me that uh, they are getting second jobs so that they can leave this job, and and uh, a lot of them are now asking to be retired for their they're retiring themselves sooner than they normally would have, just so that they don't um, they're not part of this corrupt system. Yeah, I'm glad that you're talking about them because we have a tendency to just in a situation like Iran to see any anybody in authority anybody with a uniform anybody who um, de facto kind of represents the regime as being the bad guys and 
a lot of these people are just people just trying to do their job. And as you say, they're damned if they do, if they're damned if they don't. If they, they either have to carry out the orders of the regime that they, in many cases, are you know wholeheartedly disagree with, as you talk about, or they defy the regime and get in trouble, or you know have to lose their job, etc. It's got to be incredibly harrowing. Uh, trying to be a, a conscientious police officer in in Iran. Do you think you could be a police officer in Iran? That's that's an interesting question. Um, I was brought up in a, in a completely different policing world. That is almost like a uh, like a foreign world world to me. Even though it is policing, you st- you're still enforcing the law. You're still helping people. You're still. Uh, doing law enforcement, but it is the systems are so different that, um, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know if if I could do the job that they are doing under the same circumstances. I, I probably wouldn't last because for me, I don't just follow orders. I don't believe in following orders. I believe in doing the right thing and doing the right thing in a wrong system is very, very difficult thing to do. So, um, no, but what I'm trying to show them is a wealthy country like Iran, what the policing should be like Mm. and could be like after the Islamic Republic. I'm trying to make them aware of that. So that's part of my efforts here as well, just to show them when I want to show the when I talk about the Canadian policing, it's it's basically to open their eyes to say, hey, you deserve better for what you do. And you could be so much better, but not in this system, not while Islami, the Islamic Republic is power. After you dedicated that certificate, Cam, did you hear from Officer Zari or his family or anybody? Um, um, what, what was the reaction? Um, I don't know if I can answer that for obvious reasons. I see. They've, they've been contacted. I'll, contact. I'll take that Let's as a yes. Yeah. Overall, there's been a lot of um, a lot of people. I received a lot of kind messages from a lot of people in Iran that that they thought that uh, that was such a such a stand up thing to do. So, just out of curiosity, on the on the inverse of that, have you? There's certainly no shortage of people in the West, prominent people who have been threatened um, or uh, questioned or et cetera uh, by agents of the the regime or um, I don't know if they would dare do that to a police officer, but have you gotten any clap back from uh, the regime for what you do? I, um, I, I have been getting messages and um, uh, even as far as uh, threats like that we can still reach you in vancouver don't think that uh you can do whatever you want and you're out of reach you're never going to be out of reach nobody's ever out of reach and uh we uh you don't feel safe where you are and um it's it's threats it's empty threats um what they do these threats um they make me motivated inspired to do more when i when i hear this so and and recently I had I had uh, somebody sending me a, a private message that um, the Islamic Republic has sent agents recently to Canada specifically Vancouver and they wanted me to be careful and uh, that hasn't been fact checked fact checked uh, that intel is just uh, it's unverified but I wouldn't be surprised if they're here but uh, that doesn't scare no, you we're gonna keep going doesn't scare you 
No, it's, you know what, um, scary is um, being in Iran and being on death row. Scary is too much who, uh, who was on the streets and making videos. If they can do that, you know what, this is the least I can do here. Um, before I let you go, just tell me about this uh, this effort from you and your wife, uh, this campaign that you have for orphans uh, in Iran. When my son was born, he's, he's 13 now, 13 years ago, we started uh, sponsoring orphans in rural areas in, in Iran, just so that uh, just we looked at him and he's got everything. And we figured the difference between him and those kids is geography. And that's it, where they were born, nothing else. So we try to uh, try to make a difference um, uh, in Iran with the with the orphans. And we started with two, and we're, we have uh, we have up to forty two now. We're sponsoring forty two orphans in uh, in in small villages in Iran. Is your wife Iranian? Yes, yes, she is. You moved to Vancouver to meet an Iranian girl. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, love, love happens, right? And it happened. <laughs> um, before I let you go, I'm re I am really curious what your, your family, your, your parents or your extended family, maybe even some of those in Iran, um, think of all the attention you've been getting, getting lately as the, uh, handsome police officer and freedom fighter. Um, my family in Iran, they have mixed feelings. Obviously, a lot of them um, are, are very proud of what I'm doing, and they are super encouraging. They want me to continue. And uh, there are uh, parts of my family that are, are afraid uh, for, for their safety, because the more I, I do, the more um, outspoken I become, they feel that um, they may uh, become a target of the Islamic Republic, um, especially if they're threatening me in Vancouver, then they're thinking that um, they are well within reach. And your dad? Uh, my, my parents are, are fine. They are super proud of what I'm doing and they're super encouraging. And all the, the Pasaban thing is, is a thing in the past now. And uh, they're both very, very proud of, uh, of what I'm doing and uh, they're encouraging and um, and we're in a good place. We're in a very good place. It really is a great pleasure to talk to you. I, I do, I really do find what you're doing and who you are to be inspiring. And I thank you for spending the time today and I hope we can do it in person next time. Absolutely. You know what, uh, thank you again for having me on your program. I'm, I'm a fan, like I said, uh, I enjoy um, watching your your program and uh, thank you for what you're doing as well because we're all in it together right that's that's the meaning of unity and you're bringing awareness to uh to the non-farsi speaking um audience so uh thank you for doing that and i appreciate my pleasure to be here on the program cheers cam take care of yourself until next time thank you
This is Rook, episode 265. My next guest, who is in studio today, is an Iranian-Canadian politician and a member of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, representing the provincial riding of Carleton, which is in and around the Ottawa area. Golsa Goldi Qamari was born in Ahvaz. She was only one when her family moved to Canada in 1986. She received her BA from the University of Toronto and a Juris Doctor Cum Laude from the University of Ottawa Faculty of Common Law. She started her own law practice in 2013. Goldie was first elected as an MPP in the 2018 Ontario election and is the first woman of Iranian descent to hold elected office in Canada. She has been very active and outspoken about the uprising in Iran over the last eight months and right now. Golsa Goldi Kamari joins me in the Rook studio. Hello. Hi, how are you doing, Gian? I'm so happy to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks Thank so you much for, for doing this. Me. You know, uh, growing up with a name like Gian in Ontario, I can understand why any Iranian would want to simplify their name, but Golsa, was that, did people have trouble with that? No, um, my legal name is still Golsa, uh, Golsa but uh, when I was 13 um, in high school, some of my friends started calling me Goldie. And it just kind of stuck as a nickname, and, and I've been using it ever since. So it's it's good for uh, it feels good for running for office. Yeah, I'm was, I'm for Goldie. Like it feels like it's been, yeah, feels like know, it's better on a campaign gold, poster. Exactly, like Goldie for gold, or, or <laughs> lots of jokes about that. But it was interesting because uh, when I was running, um, I didn't know if uh, if I had to have like on the ballot if I had to have Golsa or Goldie, because uh-huh. um, again, my legal name is is Golsa. Um, but apparently you can use whatever n- name you want. So uh, that was a little interesting tidbit for me. Well, that makes sense because there's, in, in Canada at least, there you can totally prank, you can run, you know, like bullshit campaigns and come up with some name or, yeah. you know. So uh, I, I've, you've see, I've seen that on ballots before. So yeah. um, what what are you for the purposes of this interview? Um, are you Golsa, the Iranian immigrant girl who grew up in <laughs> Richmond Hill, or are you Goldie, the power woman MPP? Depends on my mood, but I think since this interview is in English, we can stick with Goldie. All right. You know, I, I thought I would actually set the stage first uh, uh, to say, I mean, you, you are a sitting MPP. You're a politician here in Canada. There is an interview to be done with you that focuses on government policy, social policy, holding to you, holding you to account politically with respect to your day job. That isn't the idea for this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, I thought we want to get to get into your story and what it has meant to be an Iranian in this time in the diaspora and um, what it has meant to be growing up here and relating to this country that you were born in but uh, have been sort of um, divorced from for all these years. Let me start with a simple question, which is what has it meant to be the first woman of Iranian descent to hold elected office anywhere in Canada? Um, so it's an interesting question and it's something I get asked a lot because when I was first uh, thinking of getting involved in politics and and then when I actually ran and, and got elected, um, I had I was so focused on the election and I was so focused on my campaign that I'd never actually stopped to think about that. I'd never actually stopped to think about whether or not I was the first Iranian woman to not just run for office but to get elected in oh, Canada. Oh, really? It didn't. That that wasn't something that. It, it's just not something I thought of. If you I knew was the, it was going to be this badge that you would be carrying. No. Um, it's just because I was just so fo- focused on the campaign and so focused on winning and focused on on the policies at the time that I never thought about the the personal aspect of it. And it was only after I got elected 
that um, I think my dad turned to me and he said, Gorsa, I think, you know, in, in Farsi, that's why I'm saying Gorsa. <laughs> he said, uh, Gorsa, uh, I, think, I think you're the first Iranian woman to get elected. And I was like, really? And then we looked it up and, and searched around on Wikipedia and on, on the internet online, and we realized, wow, I, I am the first uh, woman of Iranian descent to get elected to office in Canada. Mm. Um, and at that point, I realized that, you know, this isn't just about me anymore. It's, it's about something a bit bigger. It's about, uh, you know, using my platform to, to be a voice for um, Iranian women and, and the people of Iran. Well, you know, uh, it wouldn't have been, I mean, it's not something that a lot of people would need to, at least in the Iranian community in Canada, would need to look up because it was pretty obvious to us. Uh, we would know if there are female politicians of Iranian descent. We didn't know any. I mean, there have been a few women uh, who've done their best, who've run, uh, but who, who haven't gotten elected. I, I know that. But... Um, but yeah, I remember actually when you got elected in, in 2018, and it was like, Amari, is that person, in, wow, there's an Iranian woman who just won in the Ottawa area. Um, yeah. By the way, when your father speaks to you, is it in Persian or in, in English? Uh, we speak in uh, in Persian, in Farsi, when we're around each other, but uh, when uh, you know we're out and about in public, uh, we speak English, which is really weird because growing up, our, our family rule was always, you know, in the house, bad Farsi, so bad Bokoni, so always speak Farsi. So, you know, even when we're out in public, um, I'm just, sometimes I fall into the habit of speaking Farsi with my parents, and my parents were like, we speak English in public. Your, just, uh, your Persian is quite good. I mean, for someone who left Iran at the age of one. Yeah. Uh, there's another um, conservative MPP named Michael Parsa mm -hmm. uh, for that people who are listening in Canada might know uh, Iranians. But um, my joke with him is the only person I can find who speaks Persian worse than me is Michael Parsa. But <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but yours is actually not bad. Do you read and write Persian? I do. Yes. Um, how is that? How did you do that? My parents taught me. Uh -huh. um, you know, one thing for, uh, that was really important for my parents when they immigrated to Canada was to make sure that, uh, you know, our family still has that cultural and, you know, cultural connection with Iran. And so early on, from a very young age, um, they were, we only spoke Farsi in the house. We would read Farsi books. And, and I don't know if you remember back in the uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s, the Forest Manor days, where there was like that um, Persian Saturday school, Farsi language, oh, Saturday yes, school. Yes, yes, I knew like about in, it, yes. In Forest Manor. <laughs> So and I you would, went to yeah. the Persian school there? I did, I did. Persian school is always on Saturday mornings it for was, some reason. Yeah. Even when I was a kid in England, it was Saturday mornings. Mm -hmm. I didn't retain much, apparently, of what <laughs> I learned there. I can speak decently, but yeah. I can't read and write. I'm a, I'm a, I, I like to say I'm illiterate when it comes to <laughs> Persian. Just my my writing isn't the greatest, so my writing is probably like a third grade. But you could read a book in Persian? I could. All right. Yes. All right. Maybe there'll be some policy you could write in Persian for oh, the gosh. Ontario le legislature. Your Twitter feed bio says, raising awareness about the Iran revolution. It's literally in the top of your, your Twitter feed. Uh, you know, when you first ran for office in 2018, and even when you were reelected last year, mm -hmm. did you have any sense that you would be spending this, this much time focused on Iran? So I've been trying to raise awareness about what's happening in Iran um, for several years, even, even before getting elected. Um, I would always attend protests um, and attend rallies. And I remember even back in uh, 2012 during the Green Movement, um, I was helping raise awareness, you know, just small things on social media here and there. But nothing nothing ever really caught on. Um, 
It but was, you didn't run in 2018. Forgive me for stepping in here. But you didn't run as an Iranian. You don't, I mean, there's no a, a sizable Iranian community in your riding that would help elect you, right? No, there's none. I would say I think maybe there might be somewhere between 500 to 1,000 people max mm. in in my riding of Carlton, because Carlton is is very uh, like it's with, it's within the city of Ottawa, but it's very rural, very agricultural. But uh, you know, it just you couldn't depend on being the Iranian girl to no. get elected, right? No, yeah. no, I definitely didn't run on my appearance or where I was from or, or my ethnicity. Um, when I was running, I ran on uh, what I bring to the table, what I plan on doing, my skills, and, and how I can represent the people of Carleton at Queens Park, um, which I think is how a, a solid campaign should run. Because I think, you know, it's it's great to have diversity, but I think ultimately people want to know how you can best represent their interests mm -hmm. and how you can be their voice at Queen's Park. And so the uh, raising awareness about Iran, um, that's just kind of something I do in my spare time because I figure... Well, it's I, definitely I amped up. I mean, going yes. through the, the last few years of your social media, as one does when they're researching you, it you see that in the last few months you've become much more um, vocal about yes. uh, about speaking about Iran than you were yeah. for the first few years that uh, after you got elected, I would say. Yeah, so um, so I have to backtrack a little bit here. So I, I, I made a TikTok account back in April of 2020. Uh, this was right after um, the pandemic began and we were in our first lockdown. And I kind of made a TikTok account just kind of for fun, you know, as a way to stay connected uh, with friends and family because I couldn't see them. And then... Um, I eventually decided to make, I guess, a joke video um, about life as a politician. And within the span of two days, my TikTok account went from about uh, about maybe 10 followers to 25,000 followers. So for the next few years, um, I basically just decided to have TikTok as a hobby. And initially, you know, some of the feedback I got from people was, well, it's not professional. You're supposed to be, you know, act a certain way and this right. and that. And how's right. the party going to think? Because I think it was it was very um, it was very new at the time for people. Because when you when you see a politician in public, you know, it's very scripted. It's very cardboard, yeah. cookie yeah. cutter. And so for me to go and like poke fun of myself or yeah. make jokes or just speak candidly with people, um, and does the party, uh, I mean, ever say, we've been looking at your account, can you be careful with saying these things or, or doing this or looking this way? Or? So, I, you know, I think in the first in the first few months, there was a little bit of hesitation just because it was so new. Um, but I said, listen, like, I've made it very clear that this is something I'm doing in my personal time. This isn't like a government policy thing. This is just, you know, a hobby. And if there's any consequences, I'll, I'll deal with it. Um, and in fact, during the uh, the previous election in 2022, when people thought, like, some people thought, oh, well, maybe your TikTok will come up. It never came up. No mm. one spoke about it. If anything, people told me that we voted for you because we found you on TikTok and, and <laughs> right. you're relatable. Yes, right? sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, so then, you know, by the time uh, Massa, I mean, he was murdered by the, um, by the brutal and terrorist, illegitimate Islamic regime in Iran, um, on September 16, I had about 54,000 followers on TikTok. And I had posted um, some videos uh, about Iran in the past, but they never really gained traction. But her brutal murder, um, you know, even now thinking about it, I'm getting goosebumps. Um, you know, that really impacted and resonated with a lot of people. And one of my followers, um, an Iranian girl, uh, messaged me or, you know, put a comment and she's like, can you please post about, about this? And so I did. 
I posted my speech, you know, where I attended a small vigil for her on September 18, and it didn't get much traction because when I was talking about it, um, you know, I was talking about how the um, Islamic regime treats women. I was speaking about the morality police. And, you know, when I was looking at that, I, I, I realized, I'm like, you know, we, as Iranians, we know this reality. We know what it looks like. Yes. But people outside of Iran don't. Yes. So a few days later, I made a video of how the Islamic regime treats women, you know, show, showing them being dragged away in cars, screaming, being yeah. hit, um, you know, all that, and how the women are, are fighting back now, and, and there's a revolution starting. And so I made another one, and another one, and another one, and that's kind of what started, got the ball rolling on TikTok for me. Um, the majority of my videos had over a million views. My highest viewed video had 18 um, 18.1 but I, sh I should point out this is also very personal for you right mm -hmm. I mean you've you've talked about I watched those videos I mean you've you've talked about how um, despite the fact that you, you um, being born in Afos, but you the fact that you left at the age of one you could relate to Masa Amini you you could yeah. see how Masa Amini could have been you or you could have been her exactly and 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 that's what is that, and I, I think as, as Iranians, whether we're in Iran or whether we're around the world, whether we were born in Iran or not, um, one thing that we share as Iranians is sort of this this trauma that we have from dealing with the terrorist and illegitimate sure. Islamic regime in Iran. And, you know, when I look at what happened to her, I think, you know, if if my father hadn't decided to leave Iran in 1986, that, that could have been me. Sure. And so the way I see it is, you know, I was lucky enough to live in a country like Canada, and I was lucky enough and, and blessed enough to have the opportunity to become the first Iranian-Canadian mm. elected politician, it's almost like it's, you know, I, I feel like I have a moral obligation to use my platform to raise awareness because I think everyone should have that opportunity. You know, for somebody uh, who grew up in the Toronto area, most of my life after England, like myself, uh, I've talked about this on the show, and. Um, Folks who've had a similar sort of life trajectory to me have talked about it too, about how the pride we've felt in those months of October, November, December, just seeing all these Iranians out in the streets around the world and here in Toronto and mm -hmm. here in Canada um, asserting themselves and the rebirth of this Iranian pride that we would mm -hmm. feel kind of going, wow, not only are we not hanging our heads, but we're asserting ourselves to the world and demonstrating little things that we take for granted, but we've always struggled with like the... The, the you know making sure that people around the world know that the Iranian people are not the Iranian regime like exactly. that type of thing um, how did it feel for you as a kid who um, spent most of your time growing up in Richmond Hill through your life which is now uh, has quite a sizable Iranian community how did it feel last month or I guess a couple of months ago now at that for Iran event mm -hmm. which was in a big arena yeah. in, Tor in Toronto and you were on stage when the Premier Doug Ford yeah. uh, was speaking he's uh, your party leader and, and the Premier of this uh, province and you're an MPP and you were up there with the Shida Khoshid flag mm -hmm. flying the flag tell me that tell me how that felt for you um, as you looked out to an arena of people and the the emotions of that evening for you it was a very surreal moment um, it was very, very inspiring, and it made me very proud to be Iranian because I think, especially growing up, I remember, um, you know, when I was much, much younger, you know, we're talking uh, mid to late 80s, maybe early 90s, um, 
back when the revolution was still so so new i mean it was you didn't really the go Islamic around the Islamic revolution yeah Islamic the, revolution the other one sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah um you know you didn't really go around telling people um that you're Iranian because there was a certain stigma attached to that yeah. and i even think that stigma has been around for much longer than than we realized because you know when, when i would say prior to this revolution when people thought about iran you know all they would just see these images and picture these images of you know men in turbans and women in chador mm -hmm. chanting death to america death to the states death to england uh death to israel um and and that's sort of the the stereotype that was out there and i've, I've spoken about this in one of my videos in several of my videos actually where i said you know the reason that this stereotype exists isn't because the Iranian people are like this. They're not. This is this is literally what the Islamic regime has been doing to separate the people of Iran from the rest of the world mm. and to and to hold them hostage. And I think prior to uh, technology and prior to social media, the Islamic regime really had a monopoly over what sort of media or images would be distributed to the world. Sure. And yeah. it's only with the advent of, of social media and technology that the Iranian people have been able to bypass those measures and have been able to show real images with people around the world. Well, famously, the Green Movement 2009 was is, is seen as the yeah. birthplace of sort of social citizen reporting, social media being a, playing a factor in people around the world seeing uh, what's happening on the streets somewhere where there's an uprising, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, but you were talking about the emotions of the arena that yeah. night. So, I mean, it was, I felt very um, overwhelmed, you know, and I felt proud. Were your parents there? My parents were there. They were in the front row. My parents were there. My sister was there. We had a lot of friends there as well. And it just, um, you know, it, it, I think it was a very nice way to show not just the people of Iran that were there with them, but also to show Canadians mm -hmm. who might not be aware of what's happening or might not be aware of what it's like to be Iranian that, you know, we are not the Islamic regime. We are Iranians. We are um, we are the bastion of, of democracy and freedom and, and human rights. And this is what our country was like prior to the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Does the does the premier does Doug Ford uh, say something to you that night? Like, uh, geez, look at the size of the you know the oh, <laughs> look I, at all these Iranians. I mean, was he, he was, surprised by the, the the size? I mean, he absolutely. seemed to be when he came out. I mean, yeah. how can you not be? You're you're playing an arena, right? Yeah, I think. Uh, well, he told me that's the largest event he's ever attended. Hmm. One of the largest events he's ever attended. Um, and and I think that just the fact that we were all there gathered as a community, um, I think it really went a long way to show politicians um, in Ontario and Canada that that this is something that's really important. And we are we are a huge diaspora and, and we are here. We are present. And this is something that matters. to us. Now, with that said, um, you know, we had your Swedish counterpart, or one of your counterparts to a certain extent, um, also de Rogen, mm -hmm. uh, on the show last month. And she, of course, is an MP in, in yeah. Sweden. And you would have met her probably when she was in Toronto. Uh, and she was talking about the confusion that can come, or the, the paradox that comes with being uh, elected to office uh, in a country that outside of Iran, but being Iranian, in the sense, and particularly in this time when there's you know heightened tensions around Iran and 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 people wanting you to represent, you know, um, 
she was saying it's a little weird because I'm elected to represent the Swedish people, mm-hmm. not not the Iranian people. Yeah. Yet there are Iranians who are kind of expecting me to represent the Iranian people. Mm-hmm. Do you find that kind of um, tension as well in the sense that, I mean, you are elected officially to represent the people of Carleton uh, in the Ottawa area who are not all Iranian. In fact, mostly not Iranian. Yeah. Uh, and yet, y- you know, I'm sure that you have Iranians saying, excuse me, why aren't you saying this or why aren't you doing this or how are you not representing us the way you should or or whatever as if you've been elected in Kazvin or something, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Yeah, no, it's, uh, there's definitely a tension there and um, initially that's why I was using TikTok exclusively to speak about the Iranian regime um, and to raise awareness about the the revolution. Uh, Unfortunately, I did have to... um, uh, shut down my my TikTok account about a month ago, and at that point, I had I started posting um, videos on Instagram and uh, Facebook and Twitter, um, and that's when I kind of started noticing a bit more of that tension because I think um, and, and and it's a it's a fair comment, it's a fair criticism you understand. from from constituents. Yeah. I completely understand because when they see these videos about Iran on on my you know official social media accounts but they don't they they don't see you know what i'm doing on a daily basis for example for them even though i am working right like the majority Oh you're of the talking time, about the flip side. I was going to ask you about that too. Yeah. You're talking about your actual constituents yes. wondering why you're talking so much about Iran. Yeah. My, my first I, that's also something oh, I was going to ask you about. My my first question was about Iranians expecting you to represent yes. them yes. even though you, yeah. that's not who you're officially elected yeah. by, right? Yeah, I I, I did. well exactly, absolutely. I, I definitely uh, get that and uh, um you know, I say, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best. I'm raising awareness. But, you know, I also, you know, my my first and foremost responsibility and priority is to the people of Carleton. Because as an elected official, they have put their faith and trust in me to represent them at Queen's Park. Mm. And that is my number one priority, always. Everything I do about Iran is, is what I can do in my spare time. I remember for for years when I was on the CBC, Iranians would sometimes come up to me and say, Jianzhan, why don't you do the the your program in Farsi?" And yeah. I was like, "Because no one will understand, oh. <laughs> you know, because it's yeah. the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I can't just talk in Persian." <laughs> it's true, it, but, but I mean, I'm sure you get some of that, right? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like there are some t- some videos that I made about uh, about Iran. And some of the comments I would receive is, you know, can you, uh, why are you putting these in English? You know, we want to understand. And I'm like, I'm doing these in English because I'm trying to raise awareness outside of right. Iran. And I represent, you know, if, if, yeah. yeah. And if, if you want the news, like, I mean, go to the Iranian So, so media. what do the constituents say? What do, I mean, has it become an issue at all? Do, do they say, excuse me, like, I'm dealing with a pothole on my street. Why are you talking about this thing about some country from the other side of the world? No, no, um, not at all, actually. My constituents have, have um, surprisingly and thankfully been very, very supportive. Um, again, because because my TikTok account was so popular, I, I gained a lot of visibility and, and a lot of awareness was raised. And you know, pretty much every time I'm out about in the riding or if I'm speaking with someone, I would say 90% of the time, Iran comes up and they always thank me for raising awareness. And mm. it's been very like pleasantly surprising for mm-hmm. me. And uh, you know, people who have no connection with Iran, they've always been, you know, they just say thank you for, for being a voice. I that. don't know the story of why you had to shut down your TikTok account. Um, what, what? So 
yeah, so what happened is uh, it was in the beginning of March, and that's when um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that, you know, there's potential security threats uh-huh. with TikTok, and, you know, they're banning it on government phones, and then all the uh, provincial governments followed suit. Oh, so, you were mandated to shut uh, it down. Yeah, so for safety and security reasons, I had to uh, I had to shut it down. Um I mean, obviously, I didn't want to do it, but uh, you know, as a politician, sometimes you just got to make those those tough decisions. So I've been trying to find a new medium to repost all of my videos mm. and, and to continue. I'm thinking maybe YouTube, but um, Instagram is the closest. But again, like Instagram is more about my local stuff, and I don't want to flood it all. With but it's also a different time right now. Mm-hmm. Remember that. I mean, in October yeah. and November, everything that we were posting too was getting hundreds of thousands of views, and yeah. and that sort of. It's calmed down a little bit right now, so you have to yeah. remember that. But um, have you had any threats yourself? I mean, do, uh, have there been moments where you've worried about your own safety? Uh, well, I mean, the, the threats are definitely real. You know, concern for safety is real. And I think if you look at the articles that uh, CBC and, and Globe and Mail and uh, Opera Citizen, you know, they've, they've posted in the past few months where the articles basically say that CSIS has confirmed that uh, there's a threat to Iranian foreign, you know, Iranian nationals. But I think, you know, one of the advantages I have with being a politician is that, you know, I feel a little bit safer because I know that there are people who are keeping an eye on me because I think ultimately, you know, like I I know uh, in the United States, uh, the U.S. has arrested people who try to kidnap and and assassinate Messi. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there have been... Um, acts of violence here as well against certain people who've been vocal but uh, if they tried to go after a politician that could be considered something much more serious yeah it's an international incident yeah yeah so I think in in that sense like I'm in a very unique position where I can be very active and very vocal and not be as concerned as others let me come back I mean you arrived here today with uh, a a throng of bodyguards it was was 20 (laughs) people here uh <laughs> Actually, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought you didn't come with handlers to, you know, um, no, telling me what I'm allowed to ask you or something. Is, I mean, is that really, something that usually happens? It's happened before, sure, of really? course, of course. Can you tell me who? I, I mean, it's happened with politicians, yeah, and it's yeah. happened with, uh, with, with you know, uh, movie stars or okay. uh, um, rock stars or whatever. Yeah, of course, yeah. See, you know? I think, I think with me. Um, I got elected in 2018, so I, I've been a politician for five years now. But you know, one thing that's very important for me is re- um, remembering my roots, remembering where I came from. And I mean, even to this day, I still think of myself as just Goldie. I don't, I don't see myself as a politician in that sense. And um, you know, when I'm in the riding, people don't call me MPP Kamari. I mean, people call me Goldie uh, in meetings. You know, it's always Goldie. And I think that that's really important because how am I supposed to represent people if I'm not speaking with them directly Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, when I do go to events, I actually do have someone who uh, comes with me, like one of my staff, but it's mostly just to take pictures, right? (laughs) So um, it's it's more in that sense for my social media. But uh, I mean, I... I just see myself as Goldie. And Let me ask yeah. you about your roots. Sure. Uh, Goldie, Golsa. Let me ask you about the Golsa roots. Sure. Uh, I mean, and we'll come back to the uprising and the situation today before we end. But you, so you were born in 1985 mm-hmm. in Ahwaz, represent, by the way, my dad. Uh, oh, really? Khuzestan, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I was too loud. Um, you, your, your parents decide to come to Canada yeah. in 1986. You're one years old. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you know about 
why they chose that moment and what the story was of deciding to come to Canada? Yeah, so um, so prior to the revolution, uh, my dad was in Texas. So oh. he uh, went to Texas in the 70s to study for university. He got his degree in electrical engineering and then his master's as well. And then by the time he came back to Iran, the revolution had already happened at that point. So obviously when he returned, it was a very different country than the one he had left. He married my mother and I was born. Uh, as the story goes, uh, very early on, um, they were driving and uh, as they were driving, someone with like a big machine gun or something pulled them over to the side of the road. In Ahvaz? In, uh, somewhere in the outskirts, yeah, mm -hmm. of, of Ahvaz. The guy started asking him questions. And again, this was like, you know, in 85. So very, very, you know, right. It was everything was still few fresh. few years everything, into the revolution, yeah. in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at one point, the person asked my dad to step out of the vehicle. And my mom looked at him and said, if you step out, he's going to shoot you. We need to leave now, we just drive off. So my parents drove off and they were very shaken. Um, and so my dad at that point decided, you know, he can't raise a family, he can't raise a young daughter in a country like that. Mm. And um, because he had that, that uh, degree, he was able to uh, immigrate to Canada with his young family. And uh, the first night, my parents tell me the first night we landed in Montreal, um, you know, they had two suitcases, 50 bucks and a one-year-old daughter, me. And um, that first night when they rented an apartment, they slept on newspapers and and I slept uh, in my father's jacket hmm. um, and look where we are today I've heard the story of uh, I mean I've heard you say that they arrived with fifty dollars in their yeah. pocket uh, what were those first years like for you guys um, new immigrants I mean a lot of the people who do come to Iran or at least did it's a little it's changed a little bit over the years and and especially as immigration has opened up and refugees have been allowed to come and but a lot of the folks who came um, certainly before the revolution and even in those early years were were wealthy folks, rich, mm -hmm. rich people, uh, you know, people who could afford who come here when they had some resources or mm -hmm. um, that wasn't the case for you guys no. necessarily. So how would you characterize those first few years? The memories I have are very, very happy memories. My parents worked really, really hard to build a life in Canada. My dad would wake up every morning at 4 a.m you know, leave the house by like 4.30 and go to work and stick around for overtime. And, you know, he'd be home at like 6.30, 7, 8 o'clock at night, you know, just working really hard to to build a family and, and to save up and, and, you know, build a life in Canada. Mm. And, uh, but, you know, all the memories we had were very, very happy. And uh, he gave me and my younger sister who was born um, in 91, a really, um, really good uh really good life and you know some of my earliest memories are you know we would go to canada's wonderland every year and uh, at one point we went to disneyland and you know he would always make sure that we uh, had everything we needed um and but you know i i do know that that they were building uh, you know saving up and everything because up until the age of um i would say 15 four, 14 my sister and i shared a room so for 14 years, you know, I was living in, um, uh, my parents were renting an apartment and it took them 14 years to save up. And then uh, they bought a house in, in Richmond Hill. We moved up to Richmond Hill back in uh, the early 2000s and mm -hmm. we've been there ever since. So now, you know, today when you, when you look at my parents, when you look at their lifestyle, you wouldn't think that they 
came here with next to nothing. nothing. Yeah. But I think that's just a testament to the opportunities that we have as, as Canadians and as new immigrants to build a life in Canada. And was it always the expectation that we're going to be Canadian now, we're going to settle here, or was there some thought that you guys would return to Iran? No. They moved here because they wanted their daughters to live in a better country and to have all the opportunities. Um, and my parents instilled in, in my sister and I the importance of of being proud Canadians and, and mm. giving back to our community. And, you know, if, if someone had said to my father um, 37 years ago when he immigrated to Canada that one day his daughter is going to be a politician, I don't think he would have believed it. I'm going to ask you about that. I, I mean, wh- but speaking of that, whether he would believe it or not, I mean, what were you like as a teenager? I mean, growing up in Ontario, <laughs> little Goldie running around, would you... Would, would it have been obvious to others that you were destined to be a politician? No, <laughs> no, not, not at all. Um, I mean, I was very studious as uh, a teenager. My parents wanted me to be a medical doctor because you know how it goes with uh, sure. Persian parents, doctor, yeah. lawyer, engineer, or live on the street. Those are your four options. That's the joke. You um, added lawyer there. It's not really up at, with the doctorate. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's second tier, but exactly. you did accomplish that eventually. Yes. I did, yeah. So, I mean, I was very studious, but uh, I was kind of a rebel. And, and my, my very rebellious years were when I was uh, 18, 19, 20. Um, my hair was actually the color of a uh, curtain there. It was bright red. It was <laughs> bright red. I would listen to, you know, metal and, and punk and pop. And uh, my dad would look at me and be like, Golsa, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> Politics is not something that I ever thought I was going to do. Like I never grew up wanting to be a politician or knowing anything about it or, or having And yet you went into law and law, yeah. it does feel like that's usually a, a gateway for some people, right? Yeah, so the reason I went into law is because, so, so initially when I was in university, I was taking biochemical engineering at U of T because my parents wanted me to be a doctor, but I have a phobia of needles. I just, I don't like needles. Right. Not helpful like, as a doctor to be, have yeah. a phobia of yeah. needles. Yeah. So I just, I couldn't do it. So I switched over to political science not really knowing what I want to do with political science, because up until that point, I'd taken all the math and STEM courses. And then towards Did you the, still have red hair? Uh, at that point, I did. Okay. At that point, no, I did, no. yeah. Um, and then towards the end of my degree, one of my profs said to me, like, have, what are you going to do after you graduate? And I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll get a master's or something. He said, listen, that's, you know, why would you do that? That's, you know, not going to be helpful. Have you considered law school? And I hadn't. And again, like no one in my family had ever been a lawyer. No one had gone to law school. So I looked into it and I was like, yeah, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to mm. go to law school. So um, when I got accepted to law school, my parents were very proud because they were, uh, you know, again, I was the first person in my family to to go into law. Um, at that point, I did dye my hair back to black because <laughs> I figured I should be a bit right. more professional. So I did law school for three years at University of Ottawa, common law. And, and the reason I decided to, to go into law is because I wanted to help people. So when I was a lawyer, uh, what I really did was international trade, so import, export. And you had a private practice, right? I did, Your yes, own practice. My own. Okay. My own. Um, represented multinational corporations and foreign governments in the International Trade Tribunal. So that was really my bread and butter. But I did a lot of pro bono work on the side. So mm-hmm. I helped a lot of people who, uh, with smaller issues, people who might not necessarily could afford a lawyer, but just needed some advice. So, so I did a lot of that. And it, I remember it was one of the cases I was working on, and the judge said to me, you know, Ms. Gamari, you know, I feel for your client. However, my hands are tied. This is the law. I can't do anything about it. And that's when I thought, hmm, you know, Maybe instead of fighting the law, I can focus on changing the law. 
So at that point, and that was uh, around 2014, 2015, I decided, you know, maybe I'm going to go into, um, maybe, maybe I'll work for a politician. That's what I thought. Uh-huh. I was like, I want to work for a politician. I want to do policy, legislative stuff. So I, through my practice in Ottawa, I connected with some people who had political affiliations and, and were connected. So I met up with a few of them. And, uh, you know, initially I was like, I want to work for so-and-so. Actually, I wanted to work for John Baird at the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the reason I wanted to work for John former Baird... Former foreign minister, right? Yeah, former yeah. foreign affairs minister. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to work for him is because he had shut down the Iranian embassy mm-hmm. in 2012. Oh. So I was like, I want to work for him. But little did I know at that time, he wasn't planning on running anymore. Although he was federal, right? He was federal, yeah. yeah. yeah so I wanted to work for him. Okay, yeah. Um, someone reached out and said, Goldie, have you ever considered running? You and don't that, remember who it was? I, I know who it oh, was. Oh, okay. No, you no, you no, were no. saying it's someone. I don't know. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I know who it was, but okay. it's, it's a private little note. All right, but, um, yes. Um, maybe, maybe one day in my tell-all memoir it'll come <laughs> Yes, yeah. It, 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 it'll, so, lead the, it'll lead the book. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then a light bulb went off in my head and I thought to myself, why haven't I considered running? Why am uh, I limiting myself to working for a politician when I could be that politician. And so at that point, it was too late to run federally because Mm -hmm. a federal election was coming up. But I knew that there was a provincial election coming up uh, three years after in 2018. And I knew that Carleton was going to be a brand new riding because more ridings were being created Mm -hmm. and there wouldn't be an incumbent. And I mean, the reality with politics is, is, you know, first of all, not many people get an opportunity to run. Of those who run, not many people get an opportunity to get elected. Mm -hmm. So it was very strategic. You know, you have to pick a, a good riding, a solid riding, because you don't want to put in all, you know, so much effort for a swing riding, for example, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. And and I knew Carlton has pretty much been conservative since the beginning of Canada. So I knew that if I focus my efforts on Carlton, if I can win the nomination and become the Ontario PC candidate in Carlton, You're I'm likely to win. Very likely to win the election. In terms of the question of why would I... I hadn't I decided and thought about going into politics. I can think of some reasons. Yeah. So, first of all, when Iranians say that they like doctor engineer, part of it is about also having a safe, secure, great material existence. Mm-hmm. You can make a shitload of money as a lawyer. Yeah. Don't make that much money in provincial politics, no. right? So, was that ever a concern? No. I think for anyone who who wants to be successful as a politician, you have to be in it for the right reasons. I decided to go into politics because I wanted to help my community and and leave my community a better place. And so I think that for me is what um, keeps me motivated and keeps me going. I mean, obviously, if I wanted to step down today, I could go back to law or I could, you know, work at some organization or NGO, whatever, and make three, four times as much. Mm-hmm. But I'm not really in it for the money at this point. I'm but not, and another reason, I suppose, yeah. would be that um, it's a hassle being a politician and I've had some friends who've been in provincial politics in particular but but there is this kind of old canard or a narrative that people, where people say if you're not in cabinet it's a lot of slog work that you're doing and you don't get a lot of recognition and you're um, you know you're fielding calls from people in your riding and it's not glamorous necessarily uh, you're, you're disagreeing with me you looked at me like oh no it is glamorous no uh, no, no I, not at all it's I, not glamorous I, at all. So, yeah so I mean uh, for all of those reasons it's not you know it's not getting out of limos with the Prime Minister of Sweden and and sipping champagne uh, has that been any kind of deterrent in terms of your desire to want to be in that legislature? So again, I think that goes back to 
the reason behind why someone wants to get into politics. If you want to get into politics because you want to sip champagne and be in a limo or whatever, um, I don't think you're a right person. I don't think you're the right person to be in politics. You know, again, I got into politics because I wanted to help people and make a difference. I would rather do the slog work and take those calls than to be parading around wherever because, you know, the reality is the people who voted for me to represent them don't care about whether or not, you know, I'm in a fancy room or, you know, at a fancy gala. You know, I'm going to play this event. back to you when, we, when you become ambassador to France after your political career, right? Pardon me? We're going to play this back to you oh, when, well, after your appointment sure. uh, as uh, ambassador to... Uh, France? Yeah, you know what? Absolutely. At that point, I would love that because I'm not an elected official. But I think for now, like, you know, again, it's my priority. So what are my priorities? And, you know, it, it, I'm actually... It, it's not, How do I put this? Being in cabinet isn't all it's made out to be. Because when you're a cabinet minister, you have to focus on the entire province. But me as a backbencher, I'm in a very good position where I can focus extensively on my riding and my community. So for example, uh, in, in my first term from 2018 to 2022, I was able to get funding to build 10 public schools in my riding, mm. which is a record in four years. That's never happened. Um, We've helped constituents, you know, we, we, and I have a very big team as well in my constituency office right now. Like I have, um, I have approximately uh, seven or eight people working for me. So like that slog work is, I don't see it as slog work. I see it as, as this is the difference that I'm making. Mm. And when we're able to help someone and that person calls and is thankful or grateful for the difference we've made in their lives, um, you know, I'm, I'm attending grand opening of a brand new school that I helped get funding for next week, that to me yeah. means more than being I can imagine. I can imagine. So you do all this good work. You feel like you're, um, you're energized by what you're doing. By the way, just as a sidebar, why did you go into the Conservative Party? I mean, it seems um, a lot of Iranians, especially, may, maybe not a very recent, but over the years have gravitated mm -hmm. towards the Liberal Party. Uh, and I think our first MPP was Reza Mardi was a yeah. liberal, uh, or still is maybe. Uh, uh, tell me about choosing to be in the Conservative Party. It might please a lot of people listening, or, or and and be to the dismay of others. But but why did you end up in the in the colors of yeah. blue? So again, growing up, I wasn't really really political, and when I was much younger, I you know voted NDP liberal because that's kind of how you know younger people vote, and you know how Iranians kind of tended to vote back then. It was only when um, Stephen Harper and John Baird shut down the Iranian embassy in 2012 that I really started thinking about the conservatives and, and what they mean and what they stand for. And, you know, when I looked into them a bit more, um, I realized, okay, their, their values and their policies seem to align a bit more with mine. And I remember having a conversation with um, a good mentor of mine. Um, his name is Manny Montenegrino. And he's well known in um, older conservative circles. He actually helped um, Stephen Harper uh, become the leader of the party back mm. when the two parties merged and aligned. Did he send the email? Pardon me? No, it wasn't no, him. It wasn't him. No, it was him. It was someone else. But uh, so Manny and I had this long conversation. I remember it was over sushi. And, you know, I, was, I said to him, you know, someone's told me about maybe running for office and I'm kind of debating like where I fit in and all that and you know liberals are like this way and, and uh, NDP are like this knowing full well he's conservative he's also very social conservative and some of those values don't align with mine personally mm -hmm. 
And he said to me, well, Goldie, have you ever thought about the conservatives? And I was like, well, Manny, I mean, I'm, I'm pro-choice, right? And I'm, I'm pro-LGBTQ. Like, it's, those values are, are they're non-negotiable for me. Mm-hmm. And he said, listen, Goldie, conservatives, he's like, I'm, you know, I have my social values, but, but we're very, very diverse in our ideological opinions. Mm-hmm. And we had a long conversation about it, and and by the time that conversation was over, I realized, yeah, I'm I'm a progressive conservative, I'm fiscally conservative but socially progressive, and when an opportunity came to run provincially, that's when I took it because our party, our our provincial party, that's exactly what we are under Doug Ford: progressive, you know, socially progressive, right. fiscally conservative. Right. And all we focus on gotcha. are, yeah, like you know, fiscal policies. I mean, it's it's a. Uh, my mom would always say, "Oh, the oh politics, it's a dirty business." And I think what she means is that there's, you you can't help but you know, um, you're it's built in that you're going to have some lovers and some haters, mm-hmm. and you've had your share of detractors. There's a there's some social media accounts that are actually dedicated to attacking you. You probably know about this. Uh, <laughs> how do you deal with that? I just ignore. Um, you know, I don't give them any time of day. Um, I think, if anything, it just kind of makes me feel like a real politician because, you know, when, when you look at other Really? Poli- it doesn't bother you? You don't get no. pissed off or frustrated or angry or... No, because I think I think when people make social media accounts like that, it means that I'm living in their head rent-free. <laughs> and it just means that whatever I'm doing, I should keep it up because obviously I'm, I'm bo- bothering some people. So, no, it, it doesn't bother me. It, it never has. I mean... I mean, oh my gosh, I didn't think I was going to bring this up, but um, have you seen that Rebel Media video about me from 2017? No. Okay, so after this interview, I'll, I'll show that to you. Okay. Maybe I have. What, 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 it's which it's one the is one it? with David Menzies where he accuses me of being a secret terrorist who wants to bring Sharia law to Ontario. Mm. And that was made back in 2017. And, and, you know, I think when that first came out. You're saying you're not a secret terrorist. <laughs> no. You're putting that no. <laughs> putting that on the record here. I am. Yeah. He, he equated a Facebook page to me. That's in Arabic, by the way. It's not in Farsi, mm-hmm. but he claims that it's Arabic. And it's like a picture of like this cat that's like jumping out of airplanes and it's all in Arabic. But he says that's my that's like my alter ego. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, after someone accuses you of, of, of that, Nothing else can really phase you, I don't think. And so, you know, initially with that, I was a little bit worried because that also came up before I was even elected. Right. Um, and I was worried. I was like, what are people going to think? But if anything, that made people so angry about what they were seeing that I got more support, especially right. from conservatives, right. because they were just shocked and appalled by that. You've had, I mean, but there's also, even in the Iranian community, there's a group called the Iranian Canadian Congress. Yes. who have attacked many of us, quite frankly. You're, uh-huh. you're not alone in this. They were, uh, and and this is a group that s- s- many folks have taken issue with because the, at least just to say, because for non-Iranians, they might think the Iranian-Canadian Congress with a name like that represents the entire Iranian community. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas it's just a small group of people, um, they were trying to sue you? Is that, is that... Uh, the story they threatened to I don't I don't know uh-huh. if they have or haven't um, you know I, I'm, I'm not going to repeat what I said uh-huh. because when I say something in the Ontario legislature I have parliamentary privilege so because I have parliamentary privilege when I'm in the legislature I can say certain things mm. knowing that I can't be sued 
Um, and you said so, something about the ICC, about yes. the Iranian Canadian Congress. Yes, I yeah. did. Yes. And so that's what they, they took umbrage at. Yes. And by the way, there's been a petition signed by many prominent Iranian Canadians, including mm-hmm. Hamid Ismailun and Kava Shavruz yeah. and a bunch of folks, uh, to to say that the Iranian Canadian Congress does not represent, uh, I mean, amongst other things, yeah, yeah. does not represent Iranians. So, and I think that's important that people realize that they don't represent Iranians. And, uh, you know, I actually got a lot of support, even more support, uh, when I said that, because... I think people just, especially Iranians in Canada, appreciate it that I'm just seeing what, it like it is. What is it that you felt like you needed to say in the legislature? I mean, we can play the clip, but what? You know, can you, what, what, why did it even come up? It came up because one of the reasons that I think the uh, Islamic regime has been around for so long is, is they've been able to fool Western media. And if you look at Nayak, for example, in the United States, Nayak has been basically regime apologists for years. And uh, at one point, I think it was Messi or perhaps someone else, Messi Adinejad, called them out on it and they tried to sue her for defamation. And ultimately they lost that case because the judge said, well, based on all the facts and evidence, what she has said is reasonable. Mm. Um, and, you know, when you look at the history of, of Nayak, everything they say and do has been. A, regime apologists and that's what's been fooling the western media because you have these organizations that that claim that they're speaking on behalf of iranians but they're not they're speaking on behalf of the regime they're being regime apologists and they you know they're they're part of the islam you know in in one way or another like they're connected somehow Mm -hmm. and they have control of the media and that's what's really frustrating for a lot of iranians and so when i when i said what i said it resonated with a lot of Iranians. You felt like this was a Nayak equivalent in Canada, something like that. Um, again, I, you know, I, I... You reserved the right to... I, I, you can either confirm nor deny. We'll uh, go to the tape. Yeah, yeah go yeah. to the all, tape. All, all, all right. <laughs> I didn't know that. You can say something in the legislature and, and nobody can sue you? Yeah, parliamentary privilege. What if you say something hateful? I mean, that's... Based, you know, then then your reputation, right? Uh-huh. Like, you know, there's so there's, interesting. Yeah, like there's obviously consequences if, if you, you know say something terrible, and you know your voters find out about it. But um, yeah, parliamentary privilege. So speaking of divisions, and and segueing back to the the where where we're at in terms of the uprising and what's happened in the last eight months. Mm-hmm. How, how do you feel about? I mean, this isn't you know this is something we've been talking about for the last few weeks that that sadly the um, the enthusiasm, uh, um, the emotions, and the energy that existed in the fall uh, in the diaspora uh, has become uh, a lot more subdued, if not downright frustrated, uh, in terms of the, the lack of unity in some yeah. cases and the, how things have devolved. How are you feeling about where the revolution or the uprising has gotten to now? You know, I think it's really important that we remember the reason for what we're doing. And the people of Iran want to live in a free and democratic society. They want the Islamic regime to go down. We all want that. And they are every day risking their lives, fighting, dying, being executed, being raped, murdered, tortured, killed. And you know, it, it's it's our obligation here, I think, to continue to raise awareness and, and spread um, spread the message and share the message. And, um, you know, I, I know that uh, 
there was what was that group the Iranian Democratic the, the coalition yeah, the, the, the alliance the coalition whatever. I know that's yeah. not really well I mean it was just a month and a half ago a couple months ago you were sitting there up there yeah they, they, you weren't quite on that the yeah. same podium but they you were one of the politicians up there yeah. and it was that that was the last time we basically saw everybody together yeah <laughs> before so, they start unfollowing each other on instagram but um yeah so so i mean i so i wasn't part of the coalition i never was part of that coalition mm. um i was sort of a last minute invite to that and i think one of the challenges with with that coalition was okay well who are these people how did they come together what's what's the reasoning behind it and I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. Um, the only reason I think the coalition had any legitimacy is because uh, Pahlavi was there. And Pahlavi has been saying from day one that he's there to be a representative and, and just do you know what, what the Iranian people want. And I think even though the coalition is gone and you know, I, I think you know, I kind of I had a feeling that it wouldn't maybe last that long because there were some tensions there. But I think ultimately, you know, we, we do have a leader. We do have um, Pahlavi. You're a supporter of Shahzadeh. I am 100%. And, you know, I think part of the reason is because Canada is a constitutional monarchy, Mm. right? I mean, as a Canadian, I grew up in a constitutional monarchy. and Very different from the monarchy in Iran. Very different. From the previous. Even though though that was a constitutional monarchy as well, but but again, very, very different. But but we do have a constitutional monarchy here Mm. in Canada where... And, and as a politician, I'm, you know, I'm seeing it firsthand mm-hmm. and experiencing it firsthand as well. We do have a head of state, uh, you know, the, the, the king now. Um, and, and that's a way to sort of maintain that tradition and keep that tradition alive. But in reality, the king doesn't do anything. It's mm-hmm. us politicians. And so I think, you know, at, at the very least, and, and Pahlavi has said this too, that, you know, he's not there to tell the people what to do. He's just there to be a representative and to... Um, push for for democracy and it's really up to the people of Iran what they want their future government to look like he's not going to impose in any way and so I think you know he's still raising awareness I mean he had a historic trip to Israel a few weeks ago something that you were supportive of you were tweeting about it you were retweeting Um, well I mean that would be something for example that um, you could telegraph way ahead of time that you'd know it's going to be divisive for the um, global Iranian community, and it, and it turned out to be. There's some people who didn't, you know, don't want to see that kind of um, um, rapprochement with uh, with uh, Israel. Why did you think it was uh, a good trip? It's always been part of our culture and history. I mean, if so, Iranian constitutional revolution happened in the early 1900s. 1906. Yeah, um, within the. Iranian Majlis, the Iranian Parliament, they actually had one dedicated seat for Jewish Iranians. Mm. Did you know that? Well, sure. And uh, the, I mean, uh, I mean, the history of, of Israel. And there was a vibrant Jewish community yeah. uh, all through up until 1979 in Iran. Yeah. But uh, that, that that that's not necessarily the same thing as as folks who are big supporters of Israel or not. Right, it's it, there is a dividing line, as you know. It's unfortunately it's ideological in many cases. Uh, yeah. um, There's only been one country in the Middle East who's spoken out in support of the people of Iran fighting for freedom and democracy. Can you guess which country that is? Uh, Lebanon. Israel. <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I knew what yeah. you were going to say. Yeah. So, but, right, uh, yeah. you know, I think everything ultimately, everything any one of us does or says will be divisive. Yes. And I think that's okay. And I think what we need to realize as a community is that. We do have a difference of opinions. We will have different ideologies, but that that's what makes us stronger. I mean, that's what a democracy is all about. It's about having that safe place to 
be different, to explore different ideas, to mm. have different um, uh, policies and, and platforms and work together to represent. So on the working you know, together part, yeah. here's the part that, um, is that still possible? I mean, as a supporter of Reza Pahlavi, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a, um, there's a there's a band uh, the tragically hip that the, there's a band called Sloan that once wrote a, a song about the tragically hip and they said you know or had a lyric that people thought it was about the tragically hip. I love the band it's their fans I don't like you know and um, and with the, with Reza Pahlavi there are some of his supporters that mm-hmm. are very very enthusiastic and who tend to be very very dismissive of any of the other potential opposition leaders particularly say someone like Hamid Ismailoun, you know, um, who uh, who is operating his dentist office not too far from where you grew up in, in Richmond Hill. Um, is coexistence going to be possible with, with these different factions? It has to be. I mean, look at, look at Canada. We have coexistence with different political parties, different leaders. It's what we do. And, and I think, you know, one thing that we can do as Canadians is we can export this knowledge of democracy um, and use what we know to help help Iranians, right? And, you know, again, when I say I'm a supporter of, of Pahlavi, um, I support him in the sense of what he has said about his role in this, where mm-hmm. he has said his role is to raise awareness, his mm-hmm. role is mm-hmm. to fight for change, but he has said that he is committed to the people of Iran determining self-determination. Exactly. Yes. So, yeah. so I don't support him in the sense of him going back and, and reinstating what was there before. I but I'm just him trying to be practical. Of, so, yeah. if, if if somebody says I really like Massianinajad, yeah. what do you what would you say to them in terms of that unity piece? I would say good for you. I'm glad because at least the two of us don't like the Islamic regime, and we uh-huh. want we want the Islamic regime to go down. What comes after is up to referendum or democracy. And I think that's what people. But it, that's realize. what they were trying to do with the coalition, isn't it? Well, then let's get Massey and Reza Pahlavi to be t- together. So I mean, I was never really a part of that. No one spoke with me about it, mm-hmm. so I'm not even sure why um, it it disbanded. Uh-huh, I mean, I, right. I saw a post from Nazanin Boniadi on on Instagram a few days ago, where she said she's not part of it anymore. Didn't give an explanation why. I mean, again, no one reached out to me. I don't even know how the coalition came about. Right, first of right, all, right. yeah, yeah. I know so, this. I don't, I don't mean this in an yeah, official capacity. No, 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 no capacity. not at all. Yeah. But, um, but, but I think, I think also, like, you know, if if you look at the coalition, like it was, I guess, I mean, my my assumption is that it came about because it was just, you know, four or five very prominent Iranians yeah. on social media that yeah. got together. But yeah. is that really enough to make a coalition? Right. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, if we can, if I can ask you about something a little bit more practical or, or a specific and specific to us here in Canada, because I do believe that ultimately, as much as I think that we should be supporting the people inside Iran, mm-hmm. we can't determine what happens inside Iran. That's exactly. for the people of Iran. But we can determine what happens, the predictable outcomes of the of the actions of our own government here yeah. in Canada. So so very recently, um, the Swedish parliament has, some would say finally, voted to put the IRGC on the terrorist list. The Canadian government, despite all the enthusiasm, all the, you know, turning yeah. up at protests and stuff, the prime minister has been, you know, 
and the, uh, the the foreign minister, et cetera, saying, well, you know, we support the people of Iran, the yeah. democracy, all of that. The Canadian government has still not fully put the IRGC on the terrorist list. No, they haven't. Uh, I've asked this question over and over again with different people. What is the problem? I don't know. That is a very good question. I ask that question all the time. And I sit there and I think, what possible reason could Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have for not wanting to list the IRGC, which is a fascist dictatorship, a dictatorship that murders children, rapes men and women, tortures, executes, kills, just because they want to stay in power? What is the... What is the one reasonable explanation for why they're not listed and as terrorists? And what do you come and up with? Nothing. Really? Nothing. You I don't can't have think a suspe- a... You don't have a. You don't have a. I mean, what, if you were to guess, what would it be? I don't know. I don't know hmm. why. I mean, uh, we know that Canada is a safe haven for the yes, terrorist and illegitimate we do know Islamic that. regime. I, like, yes. I've, I've made several several videos about that. I've spoken about that at length. Is that related to the, the decision to not put the IRGC on the terrorist list? Huh. I mean, I I don't know. I can't I can't say. I don't uh. I don't know anything about that. But what I do know is that there are a lot of very very rich Iranians that are affiliated with a terrorist and illegitimate Islamic regime in Iran that are coming to Canada and bringing very very large sums of money mm. with them. Whether or not that's related to the federal liberals. I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. I hope not. But again, I, I, I part of the reason I don't get it reason. is because it wouldn't be politically controversial. No, it's not like there's people out there going, "No, don't put them on the terrorist list." You know, so it, it then it's got to be something. Unfortunately, that it feels more insidious. It's like, well, what is the, what's the issue? Right? It's it's the opposite. And in fact, I still remember that exchange between Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau in in the legis in the House when. Pierre asked Trudeau, is the IRGC a terrorist entity, yes or no? And Trudeau couldn't give a simple answer. He couldn't say yes. And I think that was a moment that resonated with a lot of Iranians in Canada and around the world, quite frankly, a lot of Iranians in Canada who up until at that point had always been liberal and now were like, okay, what's going on? Mm. And you know, now I've had a lot of Iranians come up to me and speak with me and say, you know, we voted liberal in the past, but we're never voting liberal again. Well, I, if anyone's listening to this who's a representative of the Liberal Party or one of the one of the representatives of government or even a supporter, I, I, I would really love to hear the reasoning. Yeah. I mean, I know there were reasons originally that, um, well, um, it could it could uh, limit the, the rights and, and abilities of some people who could have been in the past associated with the IRGC unfairly and they didn't but those people can be carved out you know if somebody mm-hmm. who was forced to be part of SEPA 40 years ago and yeah. um, when they served at their Sarabozi you know whatever it is I don't really get it I'm, I'm, I'm really um, so th- there are some legal consequences uh, to being listed as an uh, to being listed on the terrorist list of entities. If the IRGC is listed as a terrorist entity, that means that no Canadian business or bank can do any business or dealings with them. Right. So just putting that out there. Well, we've had people on the show definitely talk about how European countries mm-hmm. feel there is a lot to lose if by uh, financially by. Um, going too hard at the current regime and 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 part of the reason why there's still this feeling of wanting to resuscitate the JCPOA and the nuclear yeah. deal because there's a lot of money to be made but um, as others who've made the point someone like um, Nick Hankosar who's been on the show talking about this 
we're not the same benefactors no. that in a direct way of a nuclear deal, et cetera. So it's it, it is a bit of a strange, a strange yeah. one, and and perhaps a disappointing. Very, um, it's actually very disappointing, very disheartening because especially in Ottawa when I'm attending rallies and we're all calling for the federal government to list the IRGC's terrorist. It's really frustrating to have these, um, you know, non-Iranian liberal politicians show up and go on stage and say things like, we support you and yeah. we support women. The women of Iran and yeah. You know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But then they won't list the RGC's terrorists. I'm like, so then what are you doing? Like, why are you, why are you here? As, the as they one say, big request yeah. of the Iranian community. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what What are your, your hopes and expectations for the future of Iran, at least in the near future? Like a, in a gut, with a gut sense, where do you think things are going? I want to be hopeful, and I'm going to continue to be hopeful, because, as we all know, um, these uprisings and movements have have happened in the past, but they've been very brutally and violently quelled. I think right now it's it's the responsibility of everyone to keep this message alive and keep keep this alive outside of Iran because we all know that this is still continuing in Iran we all know that people are protesting people are being executed Mm -hmm. all of that but the reality is that unless and until there's some sort of international movement to support the people of Iran against that brutal and fascist dictatorship nothing's going to happen they're they're going to be on their own because the Islamic regime they have guns and they have soldiers and mercenaries and weapons and, and the Iranian people have nothing so I think you know what would be really helpful in the near future is for us as Iranians to continue putting pressure on our governments because no one's asking for military intervention but what we are asking for is for our governments to stop enabling the Islamic regime and for Canada by listing the IRGC as a terrorist entity that is the first way that we can stop enabling the Islamic regime cut off their funds you know we need to we need to chokehold them economically it's good having you here. Um, Thank you. A final question. I mean, where do you where do you want your political career to go? Don't, don't be shy. Don't be don't no taught off here. I mean, oh would gosh. you would you like to be premier or prime minister? Oh my gosh! I mean, I think everyone thinks about that. Every you know, every single person who gets elected probably thinks about whether or not they're going to be premier or prime minister one day. Um, I think it all depends on opportunity. That's a yes. No, well, I mean, so every everyone has. Have I thought about it? Hundred percent. I mean, yeah. You know, I, actually, the first time I got elected, that, that person first needs night, to send you the email. Have you oh, thought no. about being? Yeah, no, my yeah. dad. No, the, the the first time I got elected in 2018, my dad was like, you know, good job. Next time around, premier or prime minister. And I'm like, thanks, Baba. Typical. Yeah. 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 You couldn't just celebrate for one night. Exactly. But you know, Justin Trudeau, he is prime minister. Yeah. You are not prime minister. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So I mean, I've definitely thought about it yes but is it a realistic thing i have i have no idea because again it's all about opportunities like if someone had said to me 10 years ago that i'm going to be a politician today 10 years ago i would have laughed and said you're joking um so i mean the opportunity is there i guess if it comes up but um if not like i I definitely see myself in some sort of advocacy role um maybe at the united nations or with some sort of ngo doing human rights work and and raising awareness about human rights issues um, around the world so lots of opportunities. I'm not uh, limiting myself to one thing, but uh, right now all, uh, all options are on the floor, I guess, on the table. Thank you. 
again for being here. Next time, policy debate. Looking forward Education to system. It. We're going to tear it apart. We're going Abs- to talk about. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's that's my bread and butter. <laughs> that's really great having you here. Merci. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goldie Kamari here live in the Rook studio. Once again, thank you for being here. This is full time for Rook for today. Uh, remember, for all things Rook related, rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, where you can also support us by pressing the support us button and becoming a Rook member on Patreon. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each and every week. Talented Anahita, Super P Parisa, Smart Pega, Savvy Roham and Bearded Omid. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. And subscribe on any of our platforms or on all of our platforms. Remember, we've got the podcast platforms. And if you want to watch what you're hearing, full videos now of our interviews can be found on our YouTube channel or on our website. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever... Mizun Bashir.